Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste thank Rodney Dangerfield. Thank you, Rodney. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Where is Rodney? Where's Rodney? That, that's from a that's from a failed oh. pilot called Where's Rodney oh. about a kid who can summon Rodney Dangerfield from wherever he is on the world to help him with his like problems in high school. <laughs> it never got past one episode. If you have an opportunity to find that on the internet, do so. It's, it's amazing. It's pretty special. Anyway, who uh, are you? My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm the one who makes Where's Rodney references. Uh, I started it. I I suppose so. Uh, and yeah, we're here to review the week's new releases, which entail what titles, William? Uh, this week we're reviewing the new releases: Death on the Nile. Marry Me, Kimmy, The Sky is Everywhere, and Compartment Number 6. We're also going to be talking a little bit about the Oscar nominations, which we didn't really talk about last week. And before we get going on any of that, unfortunately, we, we just and the news just came in like an hour before we started recording today. Yeah. Uh, we just heard that legendary filmmaker Ivan Reitman has passed away at the age of, I think, 75. He was 75 years old, yeah. uh, and uh, he... He when in the 1980s mm -hmm. uh, when he was sort of like mid from like the mid 80s to the early 90s he directed a string of comedy hits yeah uh, that were hugely influential uh, among them uh, uh, let's just go and he did right. a couple of little movies in the 70s Foxy Lady Cannibal Girls but his big first big 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 hit was 1979 Meatballs with Bill Murray fresh mm. off of Saturday Night Live then he teamed up with Bill Murray Harold Ramis and John Candy in Stripes. Then he did Ghostbusters, which is one of the most popular movies ever made. Uh, a movie called Legal Eagles, which is a hit, but not as well remembered now. Twins, starring Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ghostbusters 2, well, Kindergarten Cop, be, Dave. Between uh, Twins, Kindergarten Cop, and a, a film of his which actually is not well regarded, uh, Junior. Uh, yeah. Ivan Reitman is maybe the one who could be credited for uh, really selling Arnold Schwarzenegger as a comedic figure. Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger was not considered a funny guy. Mm. Uh, and uh, Ivan Reitman knew what to do with him. Junior aside, and I'm going to say this right now, I'm going to say a lot of nice things about Ivan Reitman. Mm. Junior sucks. Oh, he, Junior all, is a, Junior is a his, bad uh, movie. Not all of his films are great. I, no. I, I think his film uh, Evolution like tried to capture the magic and it wasn't quite there. There's some fun ideas uh, in Evolution. Evolution yeah. is about uh, like an alien like meteorite that like lands on Earth and it's got like some alien DNA on it and it starts evolving rapidly. So it starts off as like little microbes and like, within a couple of days, giant a, monsters are attacking. Yeah, within like a week, they turn into primates. And some and, fun uh, ideas in it, but it doesn't quite work right. as a film. Um, uh, and, and he, you know. He's also one of the like executive producers on stuff like Space Jam. So, yeah. uh, you know, he he worked in the Hollywood system. He made a lot of just big, broadly appealing, magical films that were you know, appealing to broad audiences. Right. And I think he was really, really good at that. Um, I think his best film might be Dave, uh, um, which is... Uh, that's a, probably, yeah. Uh, it's a comedy film where Kevin Klein plays... Uh, a fellow who he works at like a used car lot, but he happens to look exactly like the president. Uh, so he you know, poses as the president as sort of a gimmick. And then the actual government contacts him to be a stand in for the actual president. Yeah, the president needs to be somewhere else right now. We need to mm -hmm. have someone publicly. All you need to do is walk out of a hotel. Yeah. And but while he is doing that, the president has a is a, has a stroke. Falls into a coma, and now they ask Dave to pretend to be the president just a little longer. And 
until they figure out what to do with, yeah. with this. And there's some conspiracy theories and whatever like that. There's a whole plot there. But basically, it's just Kevin Klein as an everyman all of a sudden asked to be president. It's, and it's actually a very sweet movie about how the process of going through politics corrupts you to the point where you can no longer be a good politician. And if we could actually get like just like a person with common sense in there who mm. didn't have to go through the system, it, it's very... It's very, very Capra-esque. I was going to say capra It's very yeah, capra It's one idea, of the last great capra movies. Yeah, th- yeah. This idea that the presidency can be saved by, like, ordinary human wisdom. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, there's a lot if of you really If you don't play moments. the political games, you could yeah. be a great president. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sigourney Weaver is really terrific. She's yeah. the first lady. Uh, that was one of the first films where people knew where, who Ving Rhames was. He plays yeah, the yeah. bodyguard who's actually in on the, the mm. scheme. Uh, and uh, the bad guy is played by Frank Langella. Yeah. Who is... It's like signing papers for the president and doing wicked stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's really a terrific film. I think it has a lot of heart and spirit. Mm-hmm. And um, the other film of his I wanted to talk about was one that I, I thought was really great at the time. And I talked it up a lot. I gave it a very positive review. But it's Draft Day, which was his final film as a director. Draft Day has um, aged very well. People yeah. talk about Draft Day now as one of the more recent great like sports movies. And it mm-hmm. kind of just came and went. Yeah, when it, it did okay. Like it wasn't a huge hit. It came out. Yeah, 2014. 2014. It was. Uh, it was uh, Kevin Costner plays. Uh, I guess the manager of of, of a sports team. Hmm. Uh, I should look up the details on that. I can never. <laughs> that was actually a Schmodown question once. Like who was the Cleveland Browns? He was the general manager of the Cleveland Browns. Okay. And it's all about the day of the draft and all of the complicated decisions because through sheer luck they have the number one draft pick, which means that they have an opportunity to completely. Like throw the entire yeah. uh, game. Like they could choose like an underdog. They could yeah. choose the star player. Yeah, it's everybody a big... wants this player. Everybody's coming to them and like trying yeah. to negotiate before the draft has even started. It's got a great energy that movie. Just yeah, the yeah, whole it's... place setting it all in one really hectic day just makes it feel really just really tight. You know, it 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 deals with a lot of shop talk. It's mm-hmm. about a part of football that you know I don't. People who follow football are familiar with you know, Draft Day. Yeah. But, but I don't, and I'm still yeah, able there, to follow along, which is great. There aren't a lot of yeah. movies about this moment in Draft Day, so this actually makes a really exciting movie about this process of choosing players. Uh, you know, Kevin Costner is the lead. He actually like has a lot of warmth and humor and humanity. The whole movie has a kind of warmth to it that I feel is absent from a lot of blockbusters because comedies aren't really big business right now. It's all uh, you know genre pictures and, yeah. and adventure films. Uh, yeah. So it's hard to get people out to a theater for a comedy. Yeah. So here is a, a comedy film that has a kind of a sophisticated sense of humor. It's the, it's not it's not for kids. It's not mm. it's not uh, full of brash, ridiculous humor. It's actually just about workplace the, situations. Which is not to say it's like full of profanity or anything. It's no, just, just about like an adult things that adults are interested in. I feel like it's the sort of thing that if Aaron Sorkin had done that exact same movie, it would have been up for Oscars. Yeah, probably right. And, but it wasn't, so it kind of got over. But it has yeah. that quality yeah. to it. And uh, I, I really, really dug it, and I've been talking it up since I've seen it. Yeah, it's a really uh, good film. And uh, I think it's one of Reitman's better efforts because it does feel like he had matured as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. This is the guy who came from stuff like Meatballs yeah. when he wanted to do something really adolescent because he was a younger guy and he wanted to be a little bit shocking. And, uh, you know... You, you go back to something like Ghostbusters, uh, which it, it's been revisited so much, we kind of take a lot of it for granted now. Uh, but something like Ghostbusters, we constantly have to remind ourselves that the characters are, are schlubs. They're not mm-hmm. like moral, heroic people. They're, uh, you know, uh, the Bill Murray character is very clearly a con man. Mm-hmm. And they're just sort of like the whole the joke of the movie is that it's this juxtaposition between these sort of like schlubby guys who dress as exterminators and sort of 
interdimensional gods. Yeah, and I think the beauty of Reitman's work in that movie is that he knows to get out of the way of the comedy. Just let the comedy be the comedy. He not try to oversell it. Let it feel the comedy feels pretty natural, very character driven for the most part. But he also knows that when it's time to show something supernatural, we have to sell this. Mm. We cannot have this be silly. This cannot be like an Abbott and Costello thing with people rocking around with sheets over their heads. It needs to look cool. Like yeah. it needs so to got, look like, real. A lot of like really yeah. cool looking special. The monster effects, effects in yeah. Ghostbusters one and two mm. are really great. I remember um, uh, I like was practically like hiding under my chair in Ghostbusters. I saw Ghostbusters two came out. I was like six or seven. Uh-huh. I was practically hiding under my chair when the Scolari brothers came out in that big courtroom <laughs> sequence, <laughs> the, and they're like uh, covered in the, electricity, and they're the, gigantic. The, the, the ghosts of executed prisoners. Yeah, that it? bit scared the shit out of me. <laughs> that bit was awesome. Like. Mm. He was a really, really good filmmaker. He's a very adaptable filmmaker, and he knew how to, um, he knew how to fit comedy into different genres. You look at something like Kindergarten Cop. People forget Kindergarten Cop is a cop movie. Like the mm. first like twenty minutes of Kindergarten Cop, you wouldn't know it's supposed to be funny. Like it's not unfunny, but it only. That's one of the beautiful things about it is that it's only when he gets to actually be a substitute teacher for a group of kids, Arnold Schwarzenegger. That it actually becomes funny because we understand what a fish out of water he is. Yeah. And that's a very, very smart way to play that. Um, he also did a movie I think is really underrated. Not his best work by any stretch, but underrated uh, is My Super Ex-Girlfriend, which is a very silly film. Uh, it, it's all right. It's uh, a silly film. Ex. If you, it, it has a fun premise. I'll does. give you that. Luke Wilson plays a guy who uh, beats a girl. She seems really, really nice, and he's surprised to discover that she's actually a superhero. She's played by Uma Thurman. Like, super strength can fly, yeah. all that. Yeah. But when it turns out that that relationship is really fraught, because there's a lot that comes along with that, and he breaks up with her, she ends up not taking it very well, and because she's a superhero and the rules don't apply to her, uh, she can like smash his cars yeah. and face there, no consequences. There's an amazing bit. It turns out to be a dream sequence, but it's an amazing piece of cinema where like he's like he's he's moved on. He's dating someone else. He's like sleeping with her, whatever, like that. And he wakes up and he sees Uma Thurman flying outside his window with a shark in her hands, <laughs> and she throws a shark in their bed. And that is a brilliantly inspired piece of cinema. I'm not gonna lie. Um, if you like superhero movies, this is like kind of before like. There was a superhero movie boom in the 2000s, but we were still getting a lot of, like, individual superhero movies. This whole idea of, like, this interconnected superhero universes was still kind of a fantasy when My Super Ex-Girlfriend came out. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the things My Super Ex-Girlfriend is playing with Mm -hmm. are things that people weren't really thinking about in the mainstream about superheroes. And I think if it came out now... It would be at the very least appreciated as funnier than it was when it came out. If it had come out a decade uh, before or after, it probably would have been received a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, yeah, come out a decade before, you know, that's like around the time films like Mystery Men were being made, and yeah. you know, there was a lot of piss taking of superheroes then. Um, yeah, Ivan Reitman uh, tried to work in a similar mold after a lot of the uh, sort of comedic chops that he introduced into the cinematic vernacular had already kind of passed in terms of hipness. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you see films li- like Father's Day or, yeah. you know, um, uh, Which was 60- a big deal at the time. Like, ooh, Robin Williams and Billy and Crystal, Crystal together, co-starring yeah. in a movie. And it's a remake of a popular French film, which had yielded a lot of big hits like The Birdcage or Three Men and a Baby. Movie just doesn't work. It's, it's not awful. It's just kind of there. Um, uh, he also did uh, Six Days, Seven Nights, which is like, 
it's super misogynist. Uh, it, it's, it is. I, Harrison Ford is bringing it in that. Like he's, it's, he's, he can be weirdly like an inert presence if like if he's the, not into it. If yeah. he's not into it, but you can tell for whatever reason, Ivan Reitman knew how to get Harrison Ford to give a fun performance. I wish the movie around him was better. Well, he he uh, it starts uh, Harrison Ford and Anne Heche as yeah. two people who hate each other who crash land on a desert island together. Yeah, and, he, uh, he's a workaday guy who who flies the plane, and she's yeah. like a fancy lady who's like on her honeymoon yeah, or and, something. Yeah, and her yeah. her fiance is um, David. Schwimmer. David Schwimmer in that yeah. movie. And uh, yeah, they, they hate each other. And I'll give this to Ivan Reitman. The scenes where they're just sort of screaming at each other in absolute rage mm-hmm. are totally convincing. Yeah. They're, they're actually bringing a lot of energy the and bickering hate into good. those scenes. Yeah. Um, that they fell in love was completely unconvincing. No. They, no, they didn't no. have that kind of chemistry at all. No, it would have been better if they were just stayed... friends. Like, they, they learn to respect each other yeah. rather than become lovers. It's, yeah, well, just, it's, there was also that age gap as well. Like, it just, uh, it, nothing about that, nothing about them really clicked. Um, but they, they cuss at each other a lot. Yeah. That, that, that's the fun part of Six Days, yeah. Seven Nights. Uh, so he did have his strengths when it came to comedy filmmaking. And he understood how Hollywood comedy functioned. Uh, sometimes he made big hits. He usually just sort of followed his instincts and... I feel like when he came upon like a really good script with really mm-hmm. strong characters, he was able to bring all of that out yeah. uh, in stuff like Ghostbusters and in stuff like Draft Day. Hmm. Um, yeah, his his because I guess he was more interested in producing his directorial work sort of slowed down near the end of his career. His last film was 2014. Uh, hmm. But yeah, he kept on working uh, as a producer and kept on bringing, I think... Hmm what you could describe as a Reitman sensibility. He yeah. was one of those mainstream Hollywood filmmakers that defined a kind of a generation of comedy films. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he, he just recently worked very heavily with his son, Jason Reitman, mm-hmm. on Ghostbusters Afterlife. Apparently he was on set all the time, and which is why it really does have a Jason Reitman vibe to it. I'm oh, sorry, uh, an, Ivan Ivan Re- Reitman, right? an Ivan Reitman vibe to it, more than a Jason Reitman vibe to it. And, that movie, and uh, he, so. did, uh, he did some... Stanton work for a CGI character, which I, yeah. I won't reveal in case no. you haven't seen that movie. Yet, and uh, he he he'd done. I think he'd previously been like the voice of Slimer or something like oh, that yeah. once or twice. So like, yeah, he he'd done a little bit of work in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, Ivan Reitman, just a, a wonderful comedic director. Um, he, he, the Junior is really bad. Other than that, even his misses are pretty okay. <laughs> Other than that, even his misses are like this is okay. Like yeah, this isn't yeah. bad. Just doesn't quite work, but whatever, mm-hmm. like that. But um, Junior's the one where Arnold Schwarzenegger gets pregnant. It's as good as it sounds. There, um, I'll, I'll give him. You know what? I'll give him this in Junior. Mm-hmm. Junior is it, it's a garbage movie. It is okay. completely bizarre. Yeah. Uh, but Ivan Reitman is trying to make a real movie. Mm-hmm. He, he's you know this it's clearly an absurd premise, and he throws in a lot of weird comedic yeah. set pieces. But it's not Pratt falls and falling down and screaming. It's right. like we're, we're we're taking this prem this weird premise as seriously as we can for a mainstream Hollywood comedy. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, so Arnold Schwarzenegger impregnates himself and he puts the, the baby in his body and the baby's yeah. just like slipping well, around. Danny DeVito does it. But or, yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, uh, the baby's just sliding around in there somewhere. It's like there's weird. no amniotic don't, sac don't, or anything. Don't ask, yeah. don't ask questions in Junior. But, uh, you will not like the answers you find. But when he reveals what he's been doing to uh, a female colleague of his, played by Emma yeah. Thompson in that movie. Oh yeah, she's pissed. Uh, she, she's really, really angry. Not just that he was doing these things like without telling her, or yeah. you know, or without, or without like sanction. Like these are human trials yeah, for a drug like, test. Like, he, he's just doing do. all yeah. of this on his own, completely yeah. rogue. And yeah. she gets really, really mad, not just because of the ethics of the thing, but she says, you know, I, I she, she's a, a, a fertility doctor, and yeah. she's talking about how she uh, is helping women to give birth all the time, and this is something that is the purview of women, mm. and. 
how unfair it is that he, as a man, tried to take this away from women. Mm. And I, and it's like this moment of like genuine drama and outrage in this yeah. otherwise completely stupid comedy. Yeah. But I think... Emma Thompson and Jay's and, and uh, Ivan Reitman sell really, really I feel well. Like, I feel like that movie come out today, Reitman. there would be def- definitely different questions that would be asked about yeah, things yeah. like uh, gender identity and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. That would be a lot more nuanced, I would hope. Uh, yeah, and, but and yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there's because, some about how like he he starts to uh, feel a lot more womanly in being. Yeah, but uh, at the same time, there's this whole thing about like, oh, this is the this is what this is what men are supposed to do. And this yeah, is what women are supposed to do. And I'm like, yeah, that's not as rigid a thing as Junior is making it out to be. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 a it's all fucking things a mess. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but Ivan Reitman, most of your movies are really good. You will be missed mm. so much, and thank you so much for everything that you did for us. Um, before we get into the rest of the movies, we we're, we're not going to go into too much detail because the Oscars were nominated like like a week ago. Uh-huh. Uh so we're way behind on this, but I wanted to talk about it well, real the, fast. I, it's I the elephant in the room. This is the first time we've had a chance to talk about it on our podcast. Yeah. On this um, podcast since the nominees were announced. Exactly. So, um, how do you feel about the Oscar nominations? Oh, uh, this is one of those rare years where I've seen all of the best picture nominees going in. I don't mm. have to catch up on too much. Yeah, I uh, haven't I still haven't seen Coda. That's the only best okay, picture nominee yeah. I haven't seen. And I, I and a lot of these films I really like. Um Yeah. It's a, it's a real I will say this. Uh, I don't like every film nominated for Best Picture. I don't think we we've reviewed these films on the podcast. I don't think Don't Look Up is very good in particular. Mm-hmm. I didn't care for Licorice Pizza. Uh but I appreciate the vast variety of types of films that were nominated yeah, this year. Yeah, this... I know some people are mad that like Spider Man didn't get nominated, but look what did get what did come out. We yeah. have uh, a coming of age film, like an autobiographical coming of age film. Uh, we have uh, a film uh, about uh, a drama about a deaf family. We have it's, a sci fi. It's, it's kind of a comedy about yeah. a, a dramedy about a, a deaf family. We have a sci fi political satire with an all star cast. Uh-huh. We have a Japanese film about uh, about a director in conversation. Yeah. yeah. About a stage director, we have Dune, this gigantic epic sci-fi production. We have a sports movie starring Will Smith. We have this weirdly amorphous coming of age story from Paul Thomas Anderson that's very like nostalgia centric in the seventies. We have a uh, nightmarish nightmarish film noir from Guillermo del Toro. We have uh, a deconstructionist western, a very big deconstructionist western from Jane Campion, and then we have a remake of West Side Story directed by (laughs) Steven. That's not like it's uh, and the, you know, the Academy has a wide variety of tastes this year, and I appreciate that. And like you, I don't like all of these movies. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I like. I'm not so fond of Licorice Pizza either. I yeah. think Nightmare Alley is pretty dull, as a matter of fact. I like not. it, but it's, <clears> it's it's. I don't think it deserves Best Picture, yeah. but whatever. It's it's yeah. it, that it's nominated doesn't hurt. You know, me, you, you know? improve it, remove the first forty five minutes. Just I every, think everything at the, the carnival, you don't need it. Uh, but I disagree with that. But that's a longer conversation. Yeah, well. Have, I think it's too long. I agree have, with that. Have, I disagree a, with what you need to you take out. You have a shot of a, da- a dying David Strathairn holding that book, and we see a hand reach in and try to grab it. He says, no, no, I would never give you. He pulls it away, cuts to black. There you go. 45 minutes saved. Uh, anyway, um, but um, I think you would do well to watch all of these films. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't hate any of them. Uh, no, I think even the bad ones are, like, listen, I do not think Don't Look Up is a good film. However, yeah. I think you can learn a lot from watching it. I, th- I think, I it's, think, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting experience. And I think it's fine. I think the satire play is just fine. I, yeah. I, you I liked it more think, than I did. Yeah. I, I'm one of the few yeah. people who is kind of yeah. is going to defend that movie. I don't love it. I didn't yeah. give it a huge thumbs up. But The, it's, the one uh, snub here, which I was like getting ready to roll my eyes at, and yeah. I'm actually glad it wasn't nominated, was uh, Being the Ricardos. 
which is just yeah. it's getting a ton of awards attention and it's been nominated for a few things it was nominated for best actor which Act, acting and makeup uh, yeah. best acting best uh, best actor best actress and best supporting actor of those nominations i can kind of get behind jk simmons i think he did a pretty good job i think mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem are not doing a particularly good job of being those characters. No, um, they're not. But other than that, these are actually some excellent categories for Best Actor and Best... A- Excuse me, for Best Actor and Best Actress. Benedict Cumberbatch, Andrew Garfield, Will Smith, Denzel Washington. That's a great lineup. They're all giving great performances. Oh, yes. Uh, Best Actress, you've got Jessica Chastain in the eyes of Tammy Faye. I was worried that would get overlooked. I think she's great in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Olivia Colman is fantastic in The Lost Daughter. I haven't seen Parallel Mothers yet, so I can't talk about that, Penelope That's Clares. one of the big ones I missed last year. Yeah, and Kristen Stewart is Spencer. Also, a lot of people thought she'd be overlooked. She's wonderful, and honestly, if I were to predict right now who's going to win that, I think Kristen Stewart might. She's the yeah, only one up there who doesn't crossed. have one yet. Oh, I guess Jessica, Jessica Dastain yeah. doesn't either, but the, the, these, I don't think Isaac Tammy Faye has the yeah, support. The best Actor and Best Actress are all sort of like Academy standbys. A lot of them yeah. have been in the awards conversation in the I past. Think, I think every single one of the Best Actors has been nominated before, if they haven't yeah, won. I, yeah. I'm happy to see uh, Troy Kotsur, who played the dad in Coda. Yeah. Uh, he's up for best supporting. Yeah. Uh, uh, along with and, Kieran Hines yeah. for Belfast, Jesse Plemons for Power of the Dog, J.K. Simmons for being the Ricardos, and Cody Smith McPhee mm-hmm. for Power of the Dog. Uh, yeah. I'm disappointed yeah. Mike Faist didn't make the cut. Mike Faist should have made the cut. He <laughs> he's played damn good. in West Side Story. He's so damn good. Uh, just popped off yeah. the screen like holy crap! Would have been amazing. Uh, but, other, there, but even uh, so, that's a really good. That's yeah. a really good group of uh, of nominees. My favorite films rarely get nominated because I always am drawn to like big weird swings that don't get yeah. a lot of awards attention. But uh, a lot of my favorite films of the year are nominated for uh, for films mm. at the Academy Awards. Mm. Uh, it's it's always important to remind yourself that the Academy Awards are sort of like the the big party at the end of the year. Yeah, and it's their one the the award show that's the most talked about. But mm. they are no by no stretch of the imagination yeah. meant to be any kind of guide for uh, actual legitimate quality. No, and there uh, becomes this weird kind of dull uh, velocity that gets behind a lot of these films because they're uh, now only being talked about in terms of their Oscar chances rather There's, than the, their content or their quality. And I, uh, as yeah. such, even if a film you really, really love starts getting a lot of awards attention, it starts to become really dull. Yeah, uh, That happened with Nomadland. It's like, oh, Nomadland's going to win. I actually really love Nomadland. I think yeah. it's a really great movie. I don't, but it's an but, interesting choice for Best Picture. I respect the hell out of and, it. And uh, this year, I, I think Power, The Power of the Dog is the one that's getting uh, you know, sort of odds on to win. Yeah, I think it's, and, I think it's probably going to, yeah. And, you know, as the, the awards show approaches, and as we watch this enormously long awards show that takes uh, 12 and a half hours, uh, yeah. we're going to uh, sort of see The Power of the Dog sort of sneak in. We're going to mm-hmm. hear people sort of whining, oh, how boring. It's There'll probably be a couple of let's, hit pieces about why yeah, it's bad. Let's, to, uh, let's remind ourselves that Jane Campion made a hell of a good movie. Yeah. I think this is Jane Campion's year, if nothing else. I'm looking at yeah. the Best Director nominees, and I'm like, None of them, I think, has the. I think Jane Campion directed rings around the rest of the nominees. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and would it be keen if uh, she wins the year after Chloe yeah. Zhao? Yeah, it would be cool. Um, the third woman in history and like two in a row. And the only woman in history to be nominated for Best Director twice. That's right. Which is she was sad. for the piano, I believe, was her last. A lot, lot of weird records here. Another interesting record that was uh, broken this year: uh, Kenneth Branagh has now been nominated in more categories than anyone else in history. Really? More so, it was uh, George Clooney and Walt Disney were tied. Okay. And then Branna was like one behind them. But this year, he was nominated for Best Original Screenplay and Best Picture. 
Okay. And as a result, I think he's been nominated for seven different Oscars. He's been nominated so, for Best Picture, Best Director, Best uh, Supporting Actor, Best Original Screenplay, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Live Action Short. Oh, and yeah, I yeah. think he was nominated for Best Actor, although I can't remember. I think maybe Henry V. I, um, I'd have to look that up. But, but yeah, okay. so like, he's been nominated seven, seven, in seven different categories. Well, good for him. Really good for him. That's and, uh, and he hasn't won once. And again, let's... I also want to pause and say that Belfast is fine. It's really quite uh, good. It's, you know, a lot of people saying, "Ah, it's not as good." It's it's a fine film. It's it actually is. quite lighthearted. Yeah. It's it's the troubles told from the perspective of a kid who's interested yeah. in kid stuff, and Very I think wide. that's uh, yeah a, a, a good, fine way to make a movie. I think that there's there's something interesting that happens with the Oscars, and you you touched on it already, mm-hmm. where. There comes this point at the end of the year where certain films are only continued to be talked about because they're Oscar nominees or potential nominees. And then after the Oscars come and go, we just don't talk about them very much anymore. Mm. And I did a little experiment on Twitter and it was yielded some interesting results. Uh, I encourage people to go to the Wikipedia page for for Best Picture and go scroll all the way down to this year. And now scroll upwards... And find the first Best Picture nominee. Didn't have to win. Nominee that you have never heard of. And if you're one of those people who's seen everything or is like, you know, really cares about movies and you know, you've at least are familiar with the Best Picture nominees and everything, Mm -hmm. find the first movie you've never heard of except for the fact that it's an Oscar nominee. Because I find what happens is that pretty quickly, there are movies that just sort of fade away mm. and then people just don't talk about them anymore. And they're still good movies. Uh, some of the more common films that people have brought up as like, Oh, I've never heard of that mm. shine. Oh, shine. With, from, one Jeffrey Rush, best yeah, actor. It's nine, a, a, a biographical uh, film yeah. about pianist, David Helfgott. David Helfgott yeah, uh, a very, very good film. People don't talk about it anymore. It's just not, mm. people don't say, Hey, you know what you should watch this weekend shine that doesn't really come up i i saw your poll on on the social medias and uh one i saw recurring was uh the film in the bedroom i was gonna bring that up too a todd uh todd field's film which uh, uh, starring tom wilkinson sissy spacek and marissa tomei that's a damn good movie that is it's really really good i I remember a lot about it Uh, it's it's incredibly heartbreaking it's i think uh, it's tom wilkinson's best work yeah about uh, that film a family that experiences a tragedy and how they deal with that tragedy and how they deal with the perpetrator of the tragedy uh, years down the line. Um, Yeah. It's incredibly intense and it's really, really good. Uh, And here, here's what, uh, where I I start to butt up against this sort of commonly held uh, critical notion that time is the true critic. Okay, which is something I've said a lot. Yeah, uh, that it, it, it doesn't really matter what's popular now or what's unpopular now. What really matters is time. What, what are we going to be talking about in 20 years? And yeah. it turns out what we talk about in 20 years has a lot to do with what the studios are going to continue to keep in the consciousness. Very true. There's uh, a lot of advertising and uh, reissuing on social, on uh, uh, physical media, mm-hmm. a lot of... Uh, um, Films that are well, avail- aren't available are, on streaming are, for whatever are reason. Yeah. Are, are not yeah. available on streaming. And yeah. I think if they're more available, then we're going to be talking about them more. Well, Something like In the Bedroom is a great film. And yeah, I think I if it had... What keeps it in the conversation is its presence. And I think yeah. the reason we're talking about a lot of the bigger blockbusters these days, the yeah. big sort of uh, you know, superhero franchises and all the rest, 
is because the current mold is if something's popular, there's a lot of active uh, engagement around it. Well, active engagement and an active drive by the studio to keep it a permanent part of the consciousness. So they have to keep on making sequels and have to keep on making remakes and reboots. So it stays this like constant moneymaker. They're essentially force feeding the goose that leads the gold that lays the golden eggs. Yeah. And if something's not making them enough money, they're not going to make any kind of effort to make it a permanent part of the consciousness. That's true. It I, has to have a little bit of a toehold for the studio to keep pushing it. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. And when I, I want to clarify here because yeah. I feel like I'm maybe, maybe me being misquoted, maybe being misunderstood. When I say that time, I don't say time is the only critic that's right. Hmm. I say time is the critic that matters. Time yeah. is the critic that if, you're, if your movie can still remain in the conversation over time, that's the great boon. And if you fall out of the conversation, that's the danger. And on that note, I think it is up to people, especially critics, because we have the time and the inclination to go exploring into the past and watch films that maybe have been overlooked or forgotten and remind people of what's good. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons we have our Patreon podcast, Only the Best, where we're looking at every single film ever nominated for mm-hmm. Best Picture, and we're doing it year by year, and there are a lot of movies that I had no idea existed beyond that they were a title on a list. Mm-hmm. And then I finally watched them, and I'm like, this movie is fucking great. <laughs> Why don't people talk about 100 Men and a Girl? Why don't people talk about Skippy? Why don't people talk about five-star final and i think it's partly because they're not available but i think the one of the reasons why they're not available is because critics aren't doing enough to keep talking about them so that people know to look for them so that they know to ask and people who have the rights to them can then provide it's we are part of that cycle i think more than we sometimes are willing to admit uh, i I, uh, perhaps and i like to think that we have at least some influence and if i can say hey go out and see skippy Mm -hmm. uh go out and see norma sure movies like someone will actually listen to me when i say that uh every little bit helps see the divorcee i love the the divorcee great movie uh, 1932 norma sure one best actress it's a great movie that's a a great movie uh go see that one it's really really great yeah Uh, what what was the film um Mm. uh, which one the doomed relationship with Clark Gable, the pilot. Oh, test pilot. Test pilot. It was with just the, called test yeah, pilot. Yeah, yeah, test pilot. Yeah, he plays a he plays a guy whose job is to test airplanes and probably mm-hmm. die, and he lives this very devil may care kind of lifestyle. And he meets someone, and they get he like crashes an airplane into a farm. Mm-hmm. He meets a young girl at the farm. He flies away with her once the plane gets mm-hmm. fixed. They get up in a whirlwind marriage, and only then does she realize she's marrying a guy who is living like there's no tomorrow because he expects there not to be, and, and it, that is hell on a relationship. And they, yeah, that's like destroys her soul. Yeah. And that's it's, it's a pretty good movie, actually. It's a yeah. pretty good movie. Uh, yeah. C-Test Pilot. Yeah. Uh, Which is one of the reasons why I bring this up. I feel like the Oscars, for some degree of posterity, puts these films on a list. Being nominated doesn't necessarily mean you're the greatest thing ever, yeah. but it does mean uh, somewhere out there, there is a list that people will probably look at someday and say, oh, I should see that. And yeah. that, I think, helps can, a little bit. You can take it as like the Academy's recommendation. Whether yeah. or not you like it is up to you. Um, no. I'll tell you but one I thing, a movie I hadn't, I hadn't seen yet, and I ran out and finally saw it when it got nominated, Encanto. Mm. Encanto fucking rules. Yeah, Encanto's fine. I liked uh, Encanto I, I, a lot. I've watched it like twice. It's so good. Oh, I, I, I caught up with Encanto, and I, yeah. I think it's... I think it's. I thought it was a delight. Uh, sanded too clean for my taste. I don't but, uh, I you know, that's, that's, that's an issue I have with a lot of Disney animated features. There's yeah. no, no, like, edge or anything of interest in a lot it's, of them. It's one of two films I've seen since we did our... 
best of the year list that might have ended up on my best of the year list. It was oh, that right. and the worst person in the world. Yeah, the worst person in the world definitely yeah, was. Definitely that. avoided that get snubbed for best actress, though. Yeah. But not a rights, but really should have been. She's amazing in that movie. Uh, but yeah, uh, it, something that's worth noting is that this year's Academy Awards are from a, a, a more broadly expanded body. Uh, there has been a push in recent years to incorporate more people, more voters mm-hmm. in the Academy. Uh, before people from different was, countries, people from yeah, different backgrounds, there's, there's, uh, you know, fewer a lot white of, people. Yeah, a lot of announcement about how people who were not active in the industry, who are just these like old white men, were mm-hmm. still voting in the Oscars, even though they weren't uh, making movies anymore, and they weren't yeah. even watching a lot of these movies There's anymore. an argument to be made that they paid their dues, but at the yeah. same time, but at the same time, what, what was happening was, the, no matter how many people they added to the Academy Awards, the overall makeup of the Academy as an awards body remained resoundingly of one or two backgrounds. And as a result, the taste that the Academy had didn't seem to be evolving very much with the times. And in the last few years, we've seen them make some interesting choices, haven't we? <laughs> Parasite followed by Nomadland. Mm. Neat. <laughs> I would not have seen that coming like 10 years ago. I think those would have been real long shots 10 years ago under the same circumstances. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll say this. I'll, if, if Licorice Pizza or Nightmare Alley wins Best Picture, those will be the only ones I'll be like a little bit miffed about. I would be miffed by Don't Look Up. For me, it's Don't oh, well. Look Up. I don't think Nightmare I, Alley has a chance. I don't think Licorice Pizza. Licorice Pizza might. But I'd be uh, surprised if it was. I'd be surprised if it was them. Th- there's also the the frustrating contingent of Spider-Man fans who can say you yeah. sh- you should nominate Spider-Man as, and uh, again, it's not. If they had, it, okay, but okay, they didn't. But so who cares? If it's the it, first of all, it's not the Academy's job. It's no one's job to reflect your taste personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also not their job to give an award to what's the most popular. It's the most popular. It already won that award. Yeah, it made a billion dollars. What more yeah. could you pop? How much? How, how could the makers of Spider-Man: No Way Home, maybe the most popular film of the last five years, mm-hmm. how could a gold statue make them feel better? Yeah, like, like some other missing out. How, how, you're telling um, me, you're telling me that the people who made something like Power of the Dog, or people who made something like Coda, that uh, a gold statue would mean less to that than to give it to, <laughs> to Spider-Man? Spider-Man? Come on, what are we talking well, about and, here? And then there's also the people who say, "Well, it's popular; everybody wants to to see it, so uh, it's." It should get a nominee even though it's not going to win. And, well, why nominate it if you don't think it's going to win? Some people think that if you nominate more popular films for the Academy Awards, more people will watch the Academy Awards. And I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you one thing right now. That that doesn't matter. (laughs) No. Here's here's why people... First off, a shit ton of people still watch the Academy Awards. The, Mm. the, the, The viewership has gone way, way down. But with the exception of, like, the Super Bowl... Live television watching has gone way, way down across the board because everyone has DVRs right now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean what it used to. The other reason why people watch the Academy Awards, celebrities. Celebrities in fancy costumes being celebrities on television. And the internet killed that. It's a a 24-hour-a-day business now. You you can follow most of the people who are nominated for these things on Instagram every fucking day if you really care about that. Seeing them at the Academy Awards is not the giant get that it used to be. Tabloid magazines don't sell the way they used to because celebrities are out in the open more than they used to because that's the world in which we live in now. Mm. I don't care about rescuing the Academy Awards in terms of TV ratings. 
except as far as saying the, the Muppets should be hosting. <laughs> we all agree that that yeah. would not only be good yeah. television, it would be the best thing ever. So we should just make that happen finally. It's I, ridiculous. I, Disney owns the network anyway. Just do it. I just want to put it out there. Three hosts. You got John Waters. Uh-huh. He already has the Independent Spirit Awards, so he has experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get Elvira, she's a hostess anyway. Yes. And you have Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. <laughs> Those three. I, I'd watch. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Should I host I, the watch. Oscars. That sounds amazing. The, um, the power of the dog, or as I like to call it, something I can poop on. There you yeah, go. There, there you go. go. You, you just read a brilliant Oscars joke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, I don't. First off, so nominating Spider-Man won't save the Oscars. No. It won't. And, and it won't it does, legitimize a it, film that's already the it, most popular in the it world. It won't make Spider-Man any better. And all it will do is siphon attention away from films that can actually benefit from the exposure that the Oscars okay. can give them. Okay. So how does if, it help? If your complaint is, uh, or you hear somebody complain about the fact that films I've never heard of are being nominated for the Oscars, just mm-hmm. think of them as a list of recommendations right. then. I feel like there's... You've never heard of them? Fine. Watch them. Maybe yeah. you'll like them. Somebody thinks they're good. Yeah. <laughs> the Academy thinks they're good. I feel like the, this argument that like the, the Oscars aren't populist enough is mm. absurd. This year, they've got a lot of populist shit on here, for God's sake. Yeah, was, Dune, got nom- Dune got nominated. Dune, I can Dune imagine another... Spielberg movie? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's ridiculous. It, it, Don't Look Up is exactly the kind yeah. of mainstream type film. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's an Adam McKay broad comedy with a huge supporting cast of, of gigantic celebrities. Yeah, it was on Netflix. Everyone fucking saw it. Like it's uh, a big populist film. It just wasn't Spider Man. You know, they're allowed to have standards and tastes yeah, the, and things. You know, the kinds of movies that uh, that the Academy has traditionally nominated uh, has, by and large, remained the same. About sixty percent of them are sort of high end studio produced. Uh, like drama films, yeah, uh, like bio biopics and mm. message pictures, uh, uh, mm. d- movies about diseases and yeah. you know, family interdynamics, the occasional kind of historical epic, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, what's changed is not the academy, but the audience. Yeah. The audience is those used to be the biggest kinds the, of hits. The movies, These big prestige yeah. pictures that the studios would put out with big stars about heady issues yeah. used to be the blockbuster. God, the Godfather was not an art house film. The Godfather was a gigantic mainstream blockbuster. Yeah. yeah. It was. Um, when I look at the films that like, you know, people are like, oh, why aren't they nominated? First off, they have nominated a few superhero movies. They nominated Black Panther. They nominated Joker. But beyond that, I feel like... Um, Look at one of film, a film that was an unexpectedly gigantic blockbuster, American Sniper. Now I didn't oh, particularly, I didn't really care for American Sniper, but no, that's neither here nor there. Mm. It was a gigantic blockbuster, and it was a biographical drama. Mm. That kind of shit used to be what was more popular at cinemas for many, 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 and, many and years. The, it was the so highest like, grossing film that year. I think it even beat out whatever the Marvel film. It was, was huge. Yeah. yeah, American Sniper made bank, dude. Like it was ridiculous. So. Well, me, they still they up. still nominate that type of stuff, which is that type of stuff doesn't draw people to theaters, especially now, because not everybody is equally afraid of COVID right now. And I appreciate that and I understand that. And that's going to vary depending upon things like your circle, where you're living right now, your comorbidities. There's a lot. But what I think is that after the pandemic, people's like art consumption habits have changed. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to movies as often. They're more used to watching stuff at home. And I don't think everybody is as eager to go to a movie theater just because they're going to make a special trip for an event. 
So they're not going to spend a lot of money on seeing something like Marry Me. They're going to go see something that they know they can get their roller coaster money for. Mm. Uh, so in any case, uh, we're not, again, we're going to, we're going to shut the conversation off about there. It's a big, big can of worms, but, um, you know, it'll be fun. I, I, I like the Academy Awards. I have my favorites. I have my predictions and, um, who knows? Maybe we'll do a, uh, maybe we'll do a prediction contest this year. We haven't uh, done one in a little while. Maybe. Just for fun. I'm, I'm, Just for fun. I'm notoriously terrible at it. You beat me once or twice. Oh, well, yeah, once or twice. You, yeah. you, you win more often than I. Not. One year I got like all but three categories right. I was very proud of myself. But uh, it's lately not so much. Lately it's been 50, uh, closer to 50%. Okay. So we'll see. Anyway, that is it for news. And uh, let's talk about some movies. And I think, I think the big release this weekend, even though it didn't make a lot of money, uh, was Kenneth Branagh's sequel to Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile, uh, based on a novel by Agatha Christie. It's a murder mystery starring Kenneth Branagh as the Belgian uh, ultra-vain super sleuth Hercule Poirot. Hercule Poirot. A man uh, with multiple mustaches. <laughs> One got, was not good enough. He's got two mustaches that meet under his nose, and they stretch all the way across his face. Yeah. Well, they actually it, changed it a little bit. Now they're like a bit more, a bit it's, shorter it's, than it's they a, were before. It's a little more modest in, in Death on the Nile. Yeah. Um, Death on the Nile uh, is, well, like an Agatha Christie murder mystery, is an ensemble of, of potential suspects. Yeah. And, uh, the entire first half uh, entails sort of the, the big setup as to where we're going. Um, mm-hmm. You uh, basically introduce one yeah. character everyone wants to kill, mm-hmm. and then you introduce a variety of other characters, and then that person dies, mm-hmm. and Hercule Poirot has been paying attention the whole time and knows who's been where, who's got an alibi, who's got a motive, who's hiding something, yeah, so and so. it's all about trying to outguess the film. We have uh, Kenneth Branagh's back as uh, Poirot. Also, uh, Tom Bateman is back as Book. Yeah. His best friend, who's sort of like his Dr. Watson. Yeah. Uh, and they're sort of the two that are investigating together. So they're not suspects. No. Uh, but we also have, uh, the, the big drama is, a rich socialite has married. Uh, the rich socialite is played by Gal Gadot. She's, that's Lynette. Mm-hmm. She's married uh, a big, dumb, sexy beefsteak of a man played by Army Hammer. Mm-hmm. Uh, however you feel about Army Hammer... Uh, like how you feel about him kind of plays into his character in this weirdly he's, enough he's, he's like, supposed to be this kind of like sleazy untrustworthy yeah, character it's, it's really really weird how like that's it's it's like I, I i cannot say what people knew or didn't know behind the scenes but it's like kenneth branagh like talked to army hammer or thought about casting army hammer or auditioned army hammer mm-hmm. and thought that guy's a sleaze bag yeah <laughs> i think people will buy him saw, as a sleaze bag yeah um, so uh, she marries this guy, she but she stole guy, him from her best friend. Her best friend played by an excellent Scottish actress named Emma Mackey. And I had never yeah. seen her in anything before. I don't think I uh, have either, but she really pops off the screen. Yeah. Like, she's really great. In this. There's a really wonderful, when, uh, yeah. Gal Gadot is having her wedding. Uh, she comes slinking in a dress that looks like a cobra. Yeah. And she's like, walks up a staircase, looks Army Hammer right in the eye and says, so how's Lynette? It's like, Oh God, you're amazing. Uh, and there's a, a lot of other uh, yeah, you got, uh, suspects besides You got me, Rose uh, Leslie yeah. from Game of Thrones as Gal Gadot's maid. You got Russell Brand as her former fiance. Uh, you've got... Yeah, uh, French and Saunders. Yeah, French and Saunders! <laughs> you got McJennifer Saunders and Don French, a, 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 com- a comedic duo from England who 
aren't quite as well known in America, but you've definitely seen them in things. Right. That's really cool. You got Letitia Wright and Sophie Okanedo. Uh, Sophie Okanedo is great. She's so good too. in this. Um, you got Annette Benning as Tom Bateman's mother. Mm. Um, and almost everyone on board of the, they're, they're, what happens is uh, Gal Gadot and Army Hammer get married really, really quick. They decide to go on a fabulous trip down the Nile for their honeymoon. And uh, they invite all of their friends, and then also a couple of their enemies end up wandering along as well. And who should end up being there but Hercule Poirot, who gets sort of swept up in the proceedings? Mm. And, and then of, halfway, one of these people will die. Yeah, and then halfway uh, through the halfway through the night, and this is where Gal Gadot is. Oh, is, okay, is, okay. is this? I, I didn't, didn't want to give that. I think this right. Gal Gadot gets murdered. She's the one. That is the thing that Agatha Christie does in almost all of her stories, where there's one person who is. Everyone has a motive to kill this one person. They're the one who dies. Okay, so, Gal-, so Gal Gadot is the one who is murdered, and everybody has a different yeah. uh, motive. At, sometimes revealed earlier, sometimes revealed later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this film was shot on 70mm film, which mm. uh, Kenneth Branagh is fond of. He shot uh, Murder on the Orient Express on 70mm. He shot Hamlet on 70mm, uh, which is really, really frustrating because this film is ugly as sin. Uh, the entire first half is, first of all, it's edited like crap, and I think this might have yeah. been a COVID precaution. There's some editing, Where there's a yeah. lot of like group scenes or large rooms mm-hmm. where it's nothing but close-ups and there's not a lot of visual continuity, which Brun is usually pretty good about. Yeah. Uh, and in this, I think he had to like shoot people, like maybe two or three people are on set at a time. I wonder also, this is also an issue uh, that might happen when you have a gigantic ensemble cast, which is scheduling. Yeah, sometimes they can't all be available sometimes, at the same time. Sometimes they're yeah. not all in the same room. I remember I interviewed the director of The Expendables 3. Mm-hmm. And uh, The Expendables 3 ends with this giant action sequence and every single person from every single Expendables movie mm-hmm. is fighting at the same time. And I was asking him, like, that must have been a nightmare to schedule. And he said, like, there's like... I never had more than two members of the cast on set on any given day. Yeah, yeah. like they're they're not. I was not possible to do. We all had to be done in the editing. Room. So, it's not uh, possible it's, otherwise. That editing is actually really obvious yeah. in Death on the Nile, and yeah. uh, so it it kind of frustrating. I think, because, I think it settles down after a while. I think the well, second half in, it gets the, calmer. The second half is really great, but that yeah. first half where they're setting every everything up and trying to show us these big rooms and these big vistas and these wide open spaces, mm. uh, it's really obvious that they're not getting sort of the big establishing shots or the shots of the crowd all in the same place at the same time. Yeah. Or like that big pan across a big crowd or an open space. It feels like everybody's against a green screen. Additionally, a big draw of Death on the Nile is the location. It's yeah. the Nile. And so... The whole point these... is it's murder in a very fabulous it, yeah, place. It, yeah, this, the, this... the Orient Express is a fabulous train. Mm-hmm. So there's this, this fabulous boat on this beautiful river. Uh, there's some at least one real Egyptian location. Mm -hmm. And uh, they used CGI to create a lot of it because it's set in the the early 30s. And as such, we're getting these big wide vistas on this really sort of high fidelity 70 millimeter film. Uh But But they still look kind of phony. It looks really artificial. And that kind of draws from the fact that it's supposed to be this really kind of epic grand sweeping vista. If you want to see the Death on the Nile version where they actually like shot at all the real locations mm. go see the peter ustinoff version where they did yeah and you can and, see like mia farrow who played the uh, the jilted lover in that yeah. one actually like climbing the pyramids and yelling at people and shit yeah. like that it's like it's all really happening in that yeah. so there, there's you know? this element of uh despite this grand big cast and despite yeah. you know the the skill of the the filmmakers and the skill of all the actors the actors are all really fine yeah actually um, there are it's a good cast there is uh this weird cheap quality 
that's coming through, especially in that first half. Yeah. By the time the murder happens and the investigation begins, then it gets exciting. Yeah. And that's, I think, what Kenneth Branagh was really looking forward to. And he makes a good use of uh, the ship as a location. Mm, he knows, the, like, the every interview has got to take place in a different part. We get yeah, to show off different parts of the location. Yeah, the, it's, the set. Uh, the, he did this in uh, Hamlet as well, where there's, yeah. like, multiple doors next to each other and a lot of people sort of sneaking out and yeah. slamming and sneaking around the ship. All of that's really well handled. Uh, there's he adds a, a an extra element of race to yeah. the movie that's not in the original book, which I think actually works in the film's favor. Yeah, there's a Sophia Canedo's character and Letitia Wright plays her niece. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were not originally uh, black; they were actually mm-hmm. originally white in the books, and so they uh, changing that affects their connections to a lot of other characters mm. um and sometimes it's explicitly stated that uh, the you know the racial tensions that are inherent given mm. the time period and you know the class issues involved other times there's another factor that unfortunately i feel like sometimes they get a little cowardly and even though it's clearly the elephant in the room like they refuse to let annette benning look bad you know like yeah, that kind that, of thing well there's there's uh, an issue of uh, you know annette benning is a racist character and yeah. she uh, but they're never allowed to she, just she say it she doesn't just... say anything like uh, she doesn't like use racist language for instance yeah. she just says oh i don't approve of that person right like, and it's weird without, because like at yeah. given the era given like, her position as a rich just, white woman she would have lay out some racial epithets yeah it was it would have been yeah, um, it would have been not. Mm. It would have been expected that yeah, she could. Man. She could be openly racist. But I'll yeah. say this: yeah. um, she's called on it. She is. That's nice. Annette, yeah. uh, Letitia Wright calls the Annette Benning character that's on it, and she also calls Poirot on it. Yeah, it's very for, satisfying for not pointing it out, and that's actually a really great scene. That is a great scene. I actually, what, what I really, really like about this adaptation, I don't think the first half is quite as clunky as you're making it out to be. Right. But I see your point. I don't disagree. Mm. I just don't think it's quite as bad as all that. All right. um, what I really, really like about this adaptation, and I'd only just seen the original recently, mm-hmm. um, I think that Branna and uh, screenwriter Michael Green uh, made a few key changes to the script regarding various characters' motivations mm-hmm. and ha- specifically the way that Poirot is connected to this rather than just sort of happenstancing upon it. Mm-hmm. There's a bit more of uh, well, it's not bit more of a deeper connection to the characters that he and, has, and them- thematically as well. And thematically as, yeah, as well, we actually get to know a little bit more about Poirot, which yeah. ordinarily would be death, but I think mm-hmm. uh, I think Branna handles it pretty well. I think Branna understands that. The I, here's what I think when I think he did this pretty well in Murder in the Orient Express too, which is a very good movie. Not as good as the Lumet version, but very good movie. Um, I, I like it. I think it, I, it's really well. I think it's great. I think the Lumet version just had a bit more class, but like it's really really good. Yeah. Um, I think Kenneth Branagh appreciates that these stories should not just be episodic incidental anecdotes in Poirot's life. If these are Poirot movies, they should change Poirot. And I think at the end of Murder in the Orient Express, I don't want to give anything away because I think that's one of the most brilliant mystery stories ever told. Poirot is challenged ethically, I think, in a way mm-hmm. that he's never been challenged before. And here we see that the 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 events that play out and the reason why people are murdered and the way that people respond to the murders are challenging Poirot's ideas of people's value yeah. and specific, even his own. Uh, there's, a, there's a flashback sequence at the beginning where we see the origin of the mustache, which, by the way... Should be completely unnecessary, and I loved every second of it. Um, <laughs> it's like when they explained Blofeld's scar in yeah. that Inspector, 
It's like, that's that's so stupid. Yeah, but here it's actually like, no, there, there actually is a reason for that. We didn't need a reason for that. Mm. It would have been totally fine if he just liked mustaches. But the reason that they gave him actually affects the story of Death on the Nile a little bit and is an, used to illustrate his character development. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Nicely done. I also like how, you know, I, I did an article for The Wrap where I ranked every single Hercule Poirot uh, feature film. Okay. Um, have you seen the TV series, the Poirot? Oh, not in a long time. I wanted to get delve into it, but I was told to just focus on the theatrically released mm. film. So it's, I focus. It's a good series. I, I remember it being good. I just haven't watched it in a long time. I watched uh, the the theatrically released Peter Ustinov movies, of which Death in the Nile is easily the best. Uh, uh, Mer- uh, Evil Under the Sun is fun, but not. It's kind of kind of lazily handled, and mm. Appointment with Death sucks, except for Piper Laurie, who's fantastic in it. <laughs> Um, the ABC Murders, starring Tony Randall, is this weird British comedy version, like kind of in the ma- vein of like a Hard Day's Night, very fourth wall breaky kind of deal. Quite good, mm. uh, but um, one of the things that they, with exception of the ABC Murders, which is more of a serial killer kind of thing, um, every single time it's always like, here's this one truly awful person, and like the audience, even the audience would want them dead. Like that's how bad they are. And, they, and people like Diana Rigg or Piper Laurie, uh, they get to just sort of wallow in how awful they can be. Mm. And it's really, really fun. It, it adds an element of camp a lot of times, but Brandon doesn't want to do that here. And I think one of the things he did by changing a lot of the motivations of the characters is this, the um, people don't want to kill Gal Gadot specifically because they hate her. A lot of people have problems with her because they love her. Mm. And I think that that sort of connection between love and hate, between caring for something and wanting to destroy it, yeah, is something that Brandon is very interested in here. And I think ultimately, even though I think Brandon would probably have preferred to have made a more of a classier epic with like real locations and things, I can only imagine he would have preferred it because you're right, some of the big spectacles don't look as good as they could. Um, I think he mostly gets away with it. And I actually really like his somewhat pulpier approach to the Poirot stories. Mm. They're not the only way to do well, it. They're not even yeah, my favorite, but I think they're a very good rendition. And I like this movie quite a bit. I, I do too. I, I have always uh, had a bit of a weakness for uh, Kenneth Branagh's uh, bent toward theatricality. Yeah, and he can too. underplay Belfast. We were just talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's not one of the least grand films he has done. It's actually very intimate and personal. Yeah. Uh, but when he's doing these literary adaptations, he likes to take the bold swings. He likes to move the camera a lot. He mm-hmm. likes some people charging around. He's um, trying to have fun. Yeah, a, a big part of the the reason um, uh, Gal Gadot wants to marry Army Hammer is because he's just he's good in the sack. So we yeah. have to establish a lot of sex. Early it's actually in the movie. a very sexy film. There's a really uh, there's an early dance sequence that is mm. one of the sexiest things I've seen in a mainstream feature film. There's a bit where they're they're visiting one of some of like the old ruins and she starts they've established before that she had played Cleopatra in Antony and Cleopatra. Mm. She seduces like Army Hammer with Shakespearean dialogue and they're really about to fuck and you're like <laughs> like, uh, like I out in s- public and you can kind of buy that that's I, about to go down I, I kind of want to see I know that she's like been like cast as Cleopatra or like that but like now I can kind of see it I'm not gonna <laughs> lie can we get Brandon to direct what's going on um so yeah, out of curiosity, had you read or had you seen the original movie or read the book? No, I, I've actually not read uh, Agatha Christie. It's a big hole in oh, my okay. literary. Well, did you? Did you? And this, don't tell me if you were, you know, but like, did you guess who done it? No. 
Oh. I didn't know who done it. That's cool. I did. I didn't know the solution, and uh-huh. uh, I wasn't trying to stay ahead of it because no, I liked. I liked watching. Uh, Poirot figure it out. Yeah. Although I did say, uh, I did at one point, um, because Lynette is not going to be the only one to die. Oh, and yeah. uh, one of the, one of the suspects I was eyeballing turned up dead. So I was like, oh, now I'm really intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> That's good because it's yeah. one of those things where I'd seen the original movie and I can't unsee it. And yeah, they, didn't, yeah. they didn't change the solution. Like they just I, changed I knew, who was involved and how. And, I totally, yeah. I knew, because I had seen the Lumet film, I knew Murder yeah. on the Orient Express really well. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't know Death on the Nile, yeah. so it, it, it was it was fun to watch sort of the that's the, nice the deduction take place. That's cool. I'm glad I, I it, they played fair with the original. They just changed a bunch of stuff around it. But like, yeah, and I I really do like a lot of the changes actually. So um, so I I I like the way he's handling this character. I like when he's yeah. playing the character. Uh, I. I don't know how many Poirot books there were, but I hope tons. he gets to keep making more. There were tons. There's short stories and novels. There's mm-hmm. like dozens of Poirot stories. Okay. Um, in fact, actually, one of the things I thought was really, really funny, and I debated how to handle it when I did that list, like ranked list, mm-hmm. was actually quite a f- uh, when they ran uh, Miss Marple's stories were like the big bread and butter yeah, of Agatha yeah, yeah. Christie in like the mid 20th century, and there's a ton of Miss Marple movies. They started running out of Miss Marple movies, so they started taking Poirot stories and taking out Poirot and putting in Miss Marple. Marple. So there's a few extra Poirot movies out there I just didn't cover. Um, But um, I would love, it's a shame this isn't doing well, and I would love them to come back and do, I think the other big one people know is the ABC Murders, uh, which is a really, really fun story. Um, I would love to see them come back at least for that. Uh, but um, eh, if this is the two we get. I'm satisfied, but mm. it's a bummer because this is something they could do this as a perennial. Absolutely, I, just yeah. Kenneth Branagh gets a new big I, cast of characters I and would, does a murder mystery. Can we do that every year and a half? What I, are we doing? I want to see this way more than I want to see more of those Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movies. Oh god, those were just all kind of the same thing. Death mm. on the Nile doesn't feel like Murder on the Orient Express, does it? It's a different animal. Isn't Clearly it? Yeah. told by the same storyteller, mm. but Murder on the Orient Express is more of a dour moody mm. you know uh, uh, grim kind of tale and this is actually a little campy a little fun and I really just had a blast with it so um, don't don't avoid it please go see this yeah, I think I you're going to enjoy it a lot um, next up what do you want to talk about next what's the next big thing uh, well I'd like to talk about a film called Compartment Number 6 if I may alright um, let's split just, it up uh, it's, yeah. this is um, uh, this is a uh, Finnish Russian uh, co-production and it shared the Grand Prix prize at Cannes oh. with uh, I, A Hero, the Oscar Farhadi film, which we reviewed already. Yeah. Um, and it's not getting any attention. Okay. Uh, well, just, so beca- just because a, front, a lot of uh, international, we've t- addressed this before, a lot of international releases don't get uh, the same kind of attention stateside as they do necessarily in their in other countries. No. Uh, so yeah, we we might get something like a hero in sort of the awards conversation, but we're not getting compartment number six. It's just, yeah. This one's just sort of barely. And now that a hero wasn't a... nominated, people are just probably not going to talk about it at all for a while, mm-hmm. and that's that's a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. So we need to talk about this. So let's talk about it. So uh, compartment number six is about um, uh, a woman named Laura. She's played by an actress named Saidi Har Harla. And she is uh, living in Moscow with her girlfriend. And she is uh, an enthusiast of cave paintings and, and uh, mm. uh, uh, like cave writings. And she wants to go uh, take a train from Moscow to Murmansk. Uh, and she's Finnish and she's living in Russian and she doesn't speak a lot of Russian. So she's a little bit out of, out of her element. She's only used to sort of staying in with her girlfriend, but she's going to take this uh, train ride so she can go into Murmansk and go into this remote cave and study the paintings therein. Mm. 
Uh, and the movie is about her trip. It's about the train ride. Compartment, compartment number six refers to the compartment in the train. Mm. And she ends up sharing her compartment with this kind of... Uh, kind of brusque, really uh, drunken asshole of a guy named uh, Lyocha. He's played by an actor named Yuri Borisov. And the first night is disastrous. He gets drunk and he says really rude things to her and he tries grabbing her leg and she's just just completely disgusted by this guy. Mm. She even asks uh, the, the person on the train if she can uh, switch compartments and she just can't. There's no other room on this train. Uh, and over the course of the movie, he keeps wanting to have conversations with her just because they're in close quarters and there's nothing else. And she feels really, really pressured. She doesn't want to talk to this guy. She lies about who she's dating because she doesn't want uh, her sexuality to be addressed at all. Uh, but he ends up talking more about himself in these conversations and how he's uh, sort of this uh, blue-collar worker guy and he just goes to where the work is. And he actually has a pretty uh, uh, simple life philosophy mm. and ends up... T uh, which kind of ingratiates him to her. And she ends up uh, kind of opening up and they form this really kind of unlikely friendship, these two traveling companions. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever uh, traveled or done, done any sort of like extensive travel. Which not extensively, no, unfortunately. Or you've been on the road for a long time. No, I've never, I've lived never had in, the luck. Live in another country for a long time. But yeah. there is a phenomenon of a travel friend the person you meet while you're on the road and you're yeah. the best of friends for as long as you know them. And that's maybe a week tops. And then uh, you, maybe you stay in touch. Maybe you have a lifelong friend and you can right. correspond for the rest of your life. Talking about that time you shared a compartment on a train. Maybe you don't, yeah. but uh, it's kind of a magical phenomenon. I have done a lot of traveling and I have met some people like uh, when, when I was a teenager, we were traveling through Europe and we met another American and we ran into her a couple times in different countries because she was in like a similar circuits than us. She was a travel friend. Uh, and it's, it can be this really intense, uh, uh, intense kind of friendship because of its short shelf life. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't a, the kind of person that you would have necessarily socialized with otherwise, but now you know a new kind of person. Mm -hmm. You're sort of open to a new kind of person and open to uh, a different mm -hmm. kind of culture. And, the way their relationship evolves uh, seems a little tetchy because he was so rude to her right at the start. Uh, but at the same time, it's also kind of believable because of the circumstances. Uh, and the conversations they have aren't you know, wordy, they aren't philosophical, but they are very warm. And there are like a lot of little moments where we get to see these little tiny unlikely connections being made between these two people right. and sort of the kinds of things they want to do. Do you want to get a drink? Yeah, I want to get a drink. Let's just go to get drunk together and go out you know, in this one little stop in between Moscow and Murmansk uh, and discovering this world and like having this one anchor in this completely unfamiliar surrounding can be a really important thing. Right. Uh, I, it's it's not a really maybe this one's not really uh, going to be distributed wide in America. First of all, because it's very specific to Russia, hmm. uh, but also I think because people who live in the United States don't do the same kind of extensive travel hmm. as uh, people in other continents. Yeah, we we tend to not leave America. Well, but that's that's something that's kind of interesting though is that like um, 
uh, America is a collection of states, uh, and geographically the way that Europe is a collection of countries, but each yeah. state doesn't necessarily have its own identity the way that different yeah. countries do in other places in the world. Like, so state, we might travel, we bit, might travel but, uh, from state to state, but it doesn't. We're, we're still traveling within the confines of the so same like, country, and it doesn't feel as transformative to cross like, those lines, you know? It, it would be like... Oh, um, I'm in Nevada now. Oh, everything's different. Yeah, the, no. The, the American equivalent might be, like, because we're traveling just within America, because we don't leave the country, uh, it would be like if someone from New York City were taking a train from, like, Texas to Louisiana. Yeah. And you know, that's a part of the country they don't ordinarily go to, and they meet somebody who's from that area of the country. Right. Um, and we've seen stories like that before, but it's not the same as international travel. Is the it, flavor is different. Is it, a, is it a romance or is it just platonic friendship? Uh, you know what? There's a little bit of uh, something of each going on, but okay. I don't want to say what's really going I'm on. I'm just trying to get a sense of the vibe. Is it, is, it, is it a buddy picture or is it more like a... a... It's a little more of a, a like a buddy travel picture because she's okay. queer. Okay. Uh, and, you know, so she's... Definitely not interested in this guy, but, you know, there's also got definitely going to be some sort of uh, intense regard. And I think uh, the kind of friendship you develop because you know it's temporary mm. holds a very special place in the human heart. And yeah. I think uh, compartment number six understands that impulse. Um, I, I dug it. I dug it. It's it it crests in a really gentle sort of way. It seems to be meandering for a long time when you realize that there's like a, a little bit more solid relationship developing yeah. through this meandering. When other people come in to share the compartment, you realize that they kind of have to ally a little bit, like ally mm -hmm. themselves together. Uh, another uh, far like warmer, cooler guy comes in and shares the compartment. He's got a guitar and he's really talkative and he speaks Finnish. So she trusts this guy immediately. And of course he robs her blind. Uh, ah. So yeah, that lends like a little brief period. So yeah, she ends up finding this kind of, sort of a friendship. That's a little bit more like a kinship uh, over the course of their travel together. That sounds really nice. Yeah, And, and I wanted to, to talk about it because it actually came out uh a week ago. A week ago, so I, I, I missed it. When yeah, I, we don't want to miss our opportunity to recommend it. reviewed it. it. Yeah. So yeah, I wanted to talk about it, I wanted to recommend it, wanted to make sure that it was talked about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Commander number six, pretty good movie. Nice. Well, let's let's go to a different end of the spectrum here because that's uh, more of an art house, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, realistic uh, relationship story. And let's talk about the new kind of unabashedly uh, contrived rom-com, Marry Me, <laughs> uh, which Marry is a new me. film starring uh, Jennifer Lopez, as and this is a stretch, but as a world famous celebrity and musician who, who sings and performs and behaves a lot like Jennifer Lopez, significantly you know like Jennifer Lopez, uh, she is uh, she, at the beginning of the movie. She's in a relationship with another performer, a guy named Bastian, uh, played by a, a performer named Maluma, who I'm not terribly familiar with. Perfectly talented in the film. Um, they're going to get married at the end of their tour together. And they've got a song called Marry Me. And they're going to have, like, on stage, they're going to perform the song. And then they're going to get married at the end of the, of the last concert on their tour. Uh, which admittedly on stage. Yeah, it's, it's admittedly, it sounds like a hell of a gimmick. Like, it sounds like that would probably do really, really well. Um, and then just before, like, literally seconds. She's, she's in, in the she, gown, ready yeah, to go on stage. Ready to be, like, lifted, like, like fucking... Uh, uh, Commodus and Gladiator are going to be like lifted onto the stage and just seconds before that her manager hands her the phone and it shows that her fiance has been cheating on her with her personal assistant mm -hmm. and, and everyone and it's, knows and it's in the, and it's in the, all yeah. the tabloids like everyone in the audience has their phones out and they know about it and so she is mortified and 
she decides to just stop the concert dead, have a kind of a bit of a breakdown, and then she decides, okay, you know what? I've been married multiple times. It always fucks up. I do the same thing over and over again. I meet people. I misjudge them. So fuck it. I'm going to marry someone randomly right now. And who happens to be there but Owen Wilson, an incredibly boring math teacher who only came to this uh, concert to look cool for his daughter who's like starting to like get to that age where she just, so, she's, yeah. she just doesn't like hanging out with her dad. And, uh, the, the daughter is played by the girl from uh, that completely forgettable film, My Spy. Oh, I thought she looked familiar. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so she she picks Owen Wilson out of a crowd. They get married on stage. And then afterwards, it's like, uh, so bye. Yeah, so now what? <laughs> yeah. And, and then he, he yeah. they ask, if they, they immediately her manager is just like, okay, the good news is out of a million people in the crowd, you managed to not pick a serial killer or someone with like really shitty social media history. So he's not that bad. We can just get this annulled and no one will ever talk about it again. It'll be a weird little quirk in your biography. And she's just like, no, what if we lean into this and make it like a thing? <laughs> and Owen Wilson can be convinced because it's Jennifer Lopez well, to be married I, uh... to her for a few months and to try to do a publicity tour. And then the, they fall uh... in love for realsies. The... I, I typically hate this kind of romantic comedy yeah. because it tends to say uh, that, uh, and, and you see this a lot in, in uh, romantic comedies where people are trying to emulate being a couple or they have yeah. to raise a child together. Uh, like we're the Millers is an example of yeah. this. Pretending have, to be a couple pre- makes you a couple. Pre- pretending to be part of a, f- the, the institution of the family unit is so strong that merely pretending to be a family unit will draw you closer together. Yeah. Uh, same with marriage. If you pretend to be married, then the institution itself is so powerful yeah. that you will succumb to the institution. Which is really kind uh, of erasing the idea of individuality. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, which is an interesting message to keep on selling as, uh, weirdly enough, the institution of marriage in the United States is growing increasingly moribund. People are getting married less and less. Yeah, and and uh, the parameters but, of those marriages are increasingly less conventional. Yeah, uh, so uh, a romantic comedy like this, it, totally contrived. Uh, the plot beats are totally predictable. Mm-hmm. There's a race through a fucking airport, for God's sake. <laughs> uh, like, near the end, they have to race to the airport and get to something just on time so they can confess their love. You've seen it in a thousand movies. Yeah. Uh, so it has to live and die by the chemistry of the leads. Yeah. It has to be... You have That's to, why we're here. We just we're here for the formula. Yeah. The chemistry of the leads has to be distinct enough mm. so, that we believe it and that we care enough to get to the end of the movie. Owen Wilson and Jennifer Lopez are bringing more to this movie than it rightfully deserves. They're cute together. They, they're cute together and they're bringing, yeah. they're actually bringing like thought and humanity to these completely puffball roles that they do not need to be bringing. No, no, no. And I actually think that's really quite brilliant. I actually think... Pairing Jennifer Lopez, who, whether she's in a good movie or a bad movie, she's done a fair share of both. She's, I think she's been Oscar-worthy, and I think she's been in some crappy films. Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, this is a reunion from one of her crappier ones. These two were in Anaconda together. And Anaconda's fun crappy, though. Anaconda doesn't <laughs> pretend Anaconda doesn't pretend it's anything it's not. I, I saw Anaconda a, is a creature feature with a fun cast, and that's all that I is. I saw a video essay with a linguist who liked to study <laughs> um, actors' accents yeah. in movies and like how accurate they were getting it. It's yeah. like oh, Leonardo DiCaprio in Blood Diamond. You know, he's actually doing South African pretty well yeah. in that one. Meanwhile, John Voight plays John a Paraguayan. He plays a Paraguayan character, and... This guy looked at this. He's like, I don't know what he's doing. I don't. Where is he? I, I don't. This is not an accent. This is not anything. <laughs> it's so fucking weird what he's doing in that movie. Anyway, that's a fun movie. I, but here's the thing. I think pairing them up romantically was kind of genius because 
Jennifer Lopez brings a lot of vivacity, brings a lot of not not in a, not in a, not in an off-putting way, but a lot of intensity to everything she does. She's always very fully in it. And Owen Wilson has this very laid-back approach to most of his characters, even when he's playing a serial killer in something like The Minus Man. He's just very just kind of gliding through life. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of bulletproof. Everything kind of bounces off of him. And I think that those two personality types playing off against each other, someone who is just very much in the thick of every situation and someone who's just very casual, finding some common ground is just a good thing regardless of the circumstances. Yeah. I actually like, I think they bring a lot to each other and it's really quite sweet and I buy and the, their uh, chemistry, which is a lot to ask. And the, the ultimate message uh, that, you know, Owen Wilson is going to go along with this because he's actually just sort of a friendly, helpful guy. Yeah. And he and, sees that she, this, here's this person. She seems nice, yeah, and she, she's in, she's having a rough day, and he can help. So yeah, he's just he's just trying to help, and in this yeah. really kind of very laid back, benevolent sort of way. And he, what he's really interested in is just getting back to being a math teacher. Yeah, that's his real passion. That's what he always wants to do, and he's just here to sort of help this pop star. Mm-hmm. He is not not dazzled by her glamour no. at all. I mean, he's, but and he's also not. He's like, dazzled by by how beautiful she is because she's Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, but he's he doesn't not, need to pretend she's not. Yeah, he, like, he's, he's like, no, she's he, very attractive. He's not trying to like go after her wealth. He's not impressed by mm-hmm. celebrity lifestyle. He's also he's not like, he's, he's a little judgmental that. about it, but he's not so judgmental well, that like he becomes like an asshole about it. Like he doesn't, like he hates celebrity. He's just not free. He's just not interested in it. He, he He's a little judgmental, but he's judgmental with a point to why he's judgmental. Yeah. He, he points out to uh, Jennifer Lopez at one point that... She uh, she has so many helpers around, and she's so busy, and she's yeah. always on the move, and has all of these assistants, and, mm-hmm. and uh, constantly and being, maids, filmed, and, yeah, and, being yeah. filmed, and all of this, like all these people around her. He just asks, you know, is there ever a point where you get sort of like a healthy moment of being alone and doing something for yourself? Yeah, and they make partway through the movie, they make sort of a like a little miniature bet. That yeah. uh, she can't like just do stuff for herself. I was worried and for a while that it, that would that that would like take up too much real estate and become mm-hmm. like this whole thing about how she desperately needs to change to be good enough for him. And I'm glad they didn't go there. No, but it, yeah, but it, he was point. He was actually pointing something out about herself that she came to accept was yeah. that. Oh wait, I I can't even make a smoothie. Yeah, the, I'd like to be able to do that. I'd like to be able to like yeah. do some things for myself. Yeah, like I, she can't get into her house. So she has to break a window. That's like. Yeah. She understands that this is a, like a little bit of a deficiency, but he's not doing it in a way to lord it over her or prove that there's something no, deficient about I still, her character. I still feel it's a little lopsided. There's a movie I, I want to like more than I do. Like, I kind of like it, but I think it has one big misstep, mm-hmm. and that's Trainwreck, the Amy Schumer movie. Where uh, yeah, some good, uh, there's some really good stuff in there. Two, it thir- two thirds a good movie. Yeah, but my biggest problem with that movie structurally is that at the end, she, over the course of the film, she's in a bunch of like failed relationships. But the one relationship that means a lot to her, she's dating the sports doctor played by Bill Hader, and sabotage is it? Yeah. yeah, and well, what happened? He's he's got like this big event, and she is so wrapped up in her own bullshit that she gets drunk and kind of ruins his big moment, and that hurts him a lot, and they break up, and. One of the frustrating things about the movie is that at the end of the movie, she changes in a good way. She evolves to meet him, but the movie never asks him to do anything to be better for her. It's yeah, only true. it's only the woman that has a change to meet the man's standards. And I feel this brushes up against that a little bit because Owen Wilson's problems is mostly that he just feels like he's a little inadequate for her. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a little underexplored. Yeah. Well, he... 
I, I think the characters' ages have a lot to do with that because yeah. these are people in their fifties. Yeah, uh, and uh, although although they explicitly don't say that, in fact, they refer to Jennifer Lopez as north north of, of, north of thirty-five. Yeah, they're both like in their early fifties, yeah. and they look great for it. Yeah, Jennifer Lopez. Why can't we just talk think, about that? Jennifer Lopez is fifty-three years old, but uh, yeah, and he's and Owen Wilson's like just, one year older. Yeah, and he's like fifty-four. Like they're they're age appropriate anyway. Yeah, and they look great. Um, yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, that's that's I'm, totally I'm not, cool. I'm not yeah. making any kind of dig. I, no, no, no. Of course I'm, what not. I'm saying is, because of the age they are, they are, they've reached conclusions. They're yeah. mature. They're not going to make. If this was a story about twenty somethings, they'd be making different kinds of decisions. Very but much so. He is set in who he is. He understands mm-hmm. who he is, and he's made a lot of decisions to be that person. Yeah. And she has as well. So this isn't so much about trying to fix some sort of bad habit as it is about recognizing mm. bad habits that you still might be having yeah. and having the maturity to understand that this is something you need to sort of grow with. Yeah. I was reminded of uh, well, a lot of films. Obviously this is mm. film is part of a grand tradition of this kind of rom-com where two people are sort of forced to be together and find each other unexpectedly. Uh, but the movie I think this is probably going to be most compared to is Notting Hill. Uh, oh, sorry, Hugh Grant is a bookstore owner who like starts dating yeah, Julie Roberts, a, a basically. celebrity who, who plays yeah. a celebrity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think this works better than Notting Hill. I think there's something about Notting Hill that's kind of just condescending about celebrity, mm-hmm. um, and I think this is actually a bit more understanding about it, a bit more sympathetic about it. It, it makes her it, Jennifer Lopez plays the character as being a lot more human. Yeah, whereas yeah. Uh, Julia Roberts in Notting Hill was a, a little bit uh, he's manipulative, a, a, aloof and, and distant. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a it's a film that like I don't I don't buy the relationship in Notting Hill mm-hmm. the way I do here. I buy the I buy by the end of this movie. That Owen Wilson and Jennifer Lopez's characters could end up together and potentially actually be happy in a long-term relationship, mm-hmm. which is not every romantic comedy, even good ones, can say that. So I kind of like this. This is cute. It's fluffy. Um, it's not pretending to be anything that it's not, but mm-hmm. it knows exactly what it needs to do, and it did the most important thing yeah, a rom-com could do, which is get two really good leads who play off each other well. Yeah, it's it, yeah. it's it's a scoop of ice cream. Yeah, uh, it's it's nothing wrong with a scoop of ice cream. Nothing wrong with a scoop of ice cream. Hard, yeah. Hardly a meal, but you know, mm. sweet and pleasant. All right, what about? Uh, tell me about uh, Kimmy. Uh, Kimmy is the latest. Uh, maybe the twelfth or thirteenth film that Steven Soderbergh has made since his retirement. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know what? Uh, I'm, Steve, I'm never going to not make that joke. Steven, uh, uh, we will stop making jokes when you when you actually retire. Because you've actually <laughs> retired multiple times. Yeah, he says he's going to retire, he comes back. Yeah, he, so, um, he, he can't sit still. I don't care. I like him. He's a good filmmaker. Just, uh, I don't know. Kimmy is uh, a, Steven Soderbergh doing a good old Hitchcockian thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you watch this one? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I, I thought I'd hand it off to you so it'll fill in a little Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, Zoe Kravitz plays a young woman uh, who works for uh, the Kimmy Corporation. Kimmy is like Alexa. It's your, yeah. your virtual assistant. And Kim, everybody has a little Kimmy device in their yeah. uh, in their house. And But the gimmick of she, Kimmy yeah, is, is that uh, there's uh, human uh, authors who are sifting through uh, mm-hmm. recordings on Kimmy to correct things or like yeah. point out colloquialisms and program them into Kimmy so yeah. that it knows more as you go. So if it was something like um, 
uh, Kimmy, find the lost footage from the spider pit sequence in King Kong. Mm. And Kimmy is just like, I don't uh, know what that is. Fi- yeah. Buying ding dongs from the store. Like, okay, well, you would have. Some- I wrote the stupidest thing just because I didn't want anyone's Alexa to activate. Uh, <laughs> but, like, you know, so basically, if there's a miscommunication, mm. rather than let an algorithm handle it, that miscommunication goes to an actual person yeah. who listens to what was actually said and says, okay, this person is using a different term for paper towels than is commonly in the vernacular. I am adding that to the vernacular right now. This problem yeah. won't happen again. So that is a fucking nightmare idea. <laughs> that is a terrible this is sold as this really great idea like no it's great random human people are going to be listening to your conversations constantly cool i love this Uh, idea let's uh, invest uh, in this company additionally uh the zoe kravitz character is uh she's agoraphobic yeah she cannot go outside she has a lock on the inside of her door and this is only exacerbated by the fact that there's just been a covid pandemic which the movie acknowledges which i appreciate because most Mm. movies are pretending that never happened yeah and uh she has been having a, a flirtatious relationship with uh, the fellow who lives in the apartment across the street from her. She can look into his window. They've been texting. Uh, and the the true nature of their relationship is not really too well defined. Uh, she's v- very aloof, very bitter, uh, and you know, very you know, emotionally distant. Uh, also, there's a mysterious stalker character who's also looking into her apartment. Yeah. We don't know his deal for a long yeah, time. Yeah, we weren't going to find that out for a while. And this movie does... Something that always gets under my skin in movies that always scares me. Uh, spooky audio. And uh, <laughs> like, you ever see that movie White Noise? Oh, God, that movie. Uh, it's like you hear like ghosts whispering and static. That stuff yeah. scares the crap out of me. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, she hears this really loud, dissonant thing and hears some uh, sounds in it. Yeah. She gets really intrigued. She drags out some old sound equipment and, of course, isolates what sounds like an attack. Some sort of crime has happened. Yeah. Uh, She immediately tries to report it and... The company doesn't want to open this can of worms. The company, yeah, the Before she's even finished filing her first complaint, she and the audience understands that she's already part of some sort of cover-up. Yeah. To, like, not let this sort of thing leak out into the public. So she becomes suspicious. Mm -hmm. And the... But, of course, she is resolute in solving this problem because you just can't let it go yeah uh, and eventually she'll have to leave her yeah. apartment eventually and she'll have to leave her apartment yeah. there's bad yeah. guys on her trail and it becomes super action-packed yeah uh, this is a taut tight lean little thriller it yeah. is so much fun to watch yeah uh zoe kravitz plays the part incredibly well oh she's uh, good yeah. I, th- I think this is a movie that um it's not quite as much of a of a single-hander as you might think there are people who come over to the apartment there are people she talks to on the phone a lot uh, but it lives and dies based on whether or not Zoe Kravitz, A, you mm. believe her as a person who is agoraphobic, uh, but also that she can be compelling just doing stuff around her apartment, and yeah, she is. is. She's an excellent performer. I, I was reminded of a film I saw for the first time just recently, Wait Until Dark, with Audrey Hepburn. Oh, great movie. Yeah, yeah. where she plays a, a, a blind woman in, alone in her apartment, and bad guys keep on coming and going and trying to sort of manipulate her, but she gets the better of them. Yeah, that movie's uh, great. It's, it's a really great it's film. It's definitely part of the DNA of this. Mm-hmm. This is also got a little bit of rear window, but it, frankly, it's mostly Antonioni's blow up mm-hmm. or the conversation where there's one little piece of evidence that the hero finds and they had to like sort of scrub it and find out more information mm-hmm. and it leads them into a journey right. of conspiracy and danger. A, a really wonderful uh, cameo role from uh, uh, 
uh, Rita Wilson. Yeah, Rita Wilson. I haven't seen in a while. She's great. <laughs> yeah, she, she's. I don't want to say what role she plays, yeah, but she show, shows up in the movie and she she just like hits yeah. every beat. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, another one of those really tight screenplays where little things that are set up pay off in big ways later on. Yeah. What like oh why is why why are we spending so much time on the fact that the neighbors are doing construction that will be important later. <laughs> we'll get there. There's but there's one problem though, and it's a little. I, I try not to. Um, in my old age. I try not to get too hung up on things like plot holes because mm-hmm. most of the time, who cares? Yeah. Sometimes they're distracting, though. And there's a plot hole in this movie that drove me nuts. And it's because everything else is so tightly constructed. Uh-huh. So the fact that there's one thing that felt like it was really overlooked. And with I don't want to give anything away, but I will say this much. The plot of the movie has to do with the fact that Kimmy is a device that is not safe. He's not secure. Mm. And, uh, and in fact, they highlight that throughout. Whenever somebody just uses the word Kimmy in casual conversation, yeah. it turns on and says, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm listening. Yeah, which uh, is not great. In, in the middle of a conversation. Yeah, which is so like, it's basically, it's a security yeah. nightmare and it's got a lot of problems with it. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the central ideas is that there's someone who may or may not be a whistleblower about the Kimmy Corporation. And uh, they apparently they keep all the information that they have on Kimmy on their Kimmy. And a part of me is like, that's, no, I don't know. I think if you were like found out that like Apple was stealing like all your information and like could take anything off your computer at any time, which they probably can. But like, I think if the, if you had that and you probably wouldn't store all of your whistleblower information on your iPad. Yeah. It feels like that, that feels weird to me. Like it feels like that wasn't as well thought out considering how tightly constructed everything else in this movie is. One thing I really do like in this movie though, and I think this movie has a healthy distrust of security theater. Se- yeah. Security yeah. theater is what they call uh, things that are theoretically keeping your shit secure, but in practice, no one's actually touching them. Like um, uh, when you sign the back of your check, the bank isn't checking to make sure that that every single signature matches your previous signatures. Mm-hmm. They're just not. Uh, it makes I've, you feel I've, better, but I've, that's I've, not I've what they're a, doing. I've been a victim of check fraud. My signature was on it. <laughs> yeah. Like, seriously, it's like, yeah, it's it's a problem. Or like, um, ha- you know, they're supposed to check your ID every single time you use your debit card. When was the last time someone did that? Hardly. Ever, exactly. Yeah. It's all theater. A lot of it and is uh, theater, and a lot of it is just there to make you feel better about the fact that there actually aren't a lot of safeguards in place. When I, when I sign, like when you're supposed to sign with your finger on a uh-huh. like screen, it's like, sign this for your, your, uh, yeah. your credit card purchase. I draw a picture. <laughs> because you know what? That's it's easily That's recognizable. Yeah. yeah, no one's gonna. It's like if I'm buying. Don't tell a, us what picture. That would be the purpose. Well, well, but it's different each time. If oh, I'm I buy, see. If I'm buying a cup of tea, I draw a cup of tea. That's cute. <laughs> um, yeah, and I feel like every single time something comes up like that, where it's just like, oh, we're gonna break inside your laptop, and it's like, aha, you don't have the password. Yeah, we do. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, you don't know the password. Yeah, we we got that. We, yeah, we know how to do that. Like, how did you get my retinal scan? It's in the fine print. Whenever you use FaceTime. I didn't what? Know, yeah. <laughs> it's like I didn't read that. Nobody does. That's not right. <laughs> like I think I appreciate that there's that feels very Hitchcocky and this just very uh tangible mistrust of all authority. Mm. Um so I appreciate that. I mostly like this movie. I think there's there's a there's there, a hole in it that oh, I find distracting, so many, but it's really nicely constructed otherwise. And, and all of the details yeah. are really well. There's a, a yeah. bit where she's being chased down the street and she's saved by a, a, Protest. a, a group of brave protesters. Yeah, that part's uh, great actually. That part's really great. Really intense, really uh, scary, yeah. There's uh, a, a supporting character. She has like this Romanian hacker friend. Yeah. It's like, uh, and he has a line that, of course, immediately my wife and I started repeating back to each other. But uh, 
she points out to him, you're a hacker, right? Yes, I am a hacker. You know that you could get busted by the authorities for this. Well, I invite them to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> just a, just his, his reading yeah. was really, really great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and yet it's, it's under 90 minutes. So it's yeah. nice and lean. It's, it does. It's a snack. It's a really, really mm. delicious snack of a movie. Mm. Like you should, if it, it's again, this is another movie that if this was released in theaters, it might make its money back, but there's no way to make a hundred mil. There, but like on HBO Max right now, just go see just it. Just go see it. it. Yeah, Seriously, it. this is one of those things it's, that I think I would have seen twice in theaters, yeah. just because it's so it's so like comestible. In the time you could take you to binge two episodes of Love Is Blind, you could watch Kimmy and get something really great out of it. Uh, so do that. Uh, it's it's a, it's, so it's, it's a it's a solid thriller. It's yeah. a solid thriller. I, I did enjoy it a lot. And then lastly uh, and, uh, is and yeah. One of the yeah. reasons is we didn't cite uh, the screenwriter. Oh, it's David Cap. It's David Cap. So yeah. He he writes a lot of really good films yeah. with high concepts that work in a, a tight environment. He did. Yeah. I wrote a film called Apartment Zero. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a, wrote and directed Premium Rush. Oh yeah, uh, which is one one of the better crime movies of like the last yeah, decade. Just, yeah. Uh, he wrote and uh, directed uh, trigger effect, which is mm. underappreciated. I feel it's basically uh, it's okay. like, it, it feels like a good twilight zone episode movie where it's like, Hey, what if all the power everywhere in the world shut off at once? And then it yeah. never unshut off. Uh, he, he also uh, directed that film Mordecai. Don't bother with it. Yeah. Uh, nobody's perfect. But yeah. um, he also did that, he, um, that pretty, terrible Kevin Bacon haunted house movie from last year too. I forgot. Oh, it's, it's like, called you should have left. You should have yeah, left. I, I didn't see it's, that one. It, it doesn't work. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, he also, yeah. he works with you know, the Hollywood or like a Jack Ryan movie. Wrote yeah. The Tom Cruise mummy movie. Like, cause he, yeah. he, he wrote Jurassic Park. Just, he did right. Yeah. He wrote, he wrote Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. He, could, he was one, one of the credit screenwriters on Spider-Man. Like he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's an institution basically. And this yeah. is just, this is just good well, evidence it, that he's still got it when it comes to this kind of thriller i think mm-hmm. this is where he really excels as a screenwriter i agree oh you know what he did that was brilliant stir of echoes he did stir of echoes as well stir of echoes is an actually movie. brilliant haunted house story well more of a supernatural thriller i guess starring kevin bacon That's so haunted house. Yeah, it's, in some ways it's yes in some ways no but in any yeah, case it's yeah. really really good it got completely overlooked because it came out like a month after the sixth sense and it's also about was, a guy who yeah. develops a sixth sense yeah, but it's really, really good. Don't miss this it. This working class guy gets hypnotized and he can, he starts getting like messages from the beyond in his yeah. brain and starts going a little crazy. Yeah, great. Just really, really great working class hero version mm-hmm. of the sixth sense. Like it's rock. It rocks. Um, okay. And there's one more film we're reviewing this week. Uh, it is called the sky is everywhere, which mm-hmm. in my experience is true. It is. Yeah. Just look up. There it is. Yeah. Oh, the or if you're inside, just, it's still there. Just walk outside and you'd see it. And, you know, uh, the Skies Everywhere is uh, uh, based on a young adult novel. It was written by uh, by Jandy Nelson. Uh, Jandy Nelson also wrote the screenplay for this one. And it's directed by Josephine Decker, who did oh, yeah. Shirley, uh, yeah, the, great the Shirley Jackson film, and uh, Madeline's Madeline from a couple of years ago. Yeah, really, really um, wonderful filmmaker. Yeah, uh, she has done a lot of. Uh, I, I caught. A, she has a, a couple of films of hers on the Criterion Channel, so I got. Mm. To, I, I was interviewing her, so I caught up on That's some great. of her uh, her lesser known works. I didn't see Madeline's Madeline though, Aww. which I know is like one of her. It's considered one of her best. Yeah, yeah. One of her breakout hits. Uh, yeah, but this one is uh, a lot gentler than some of uh, Josephine Decker's other movies. Her, her movies are. They're intense, but they're whimsical at the same time. Yeah. Like, you might even say that about Shirley, who's like has a dark sense of humor, but it's really kind of sardonic in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. There's this sort of fantasy element to that movie as well. Um, I think she's worked with Miranda July before. So, yeah, if you're working with Miranda, Miranda July, you have a sense of whimsy. And uh, this is a bit of a sad story told in 
I guess sort of a bright way. It's about a, a teenage girl. She's played by an actress named Grace Kaufman who uh, loses her sister. Her older sister dies hmm. very suddenly just on, on stage yeah. performing. She's an, uh, an actress oh my God. and she just collapses. She's just dead. Oh, Jesus. And uh, she's being raised by her grandmother played by Cherry Jones and her uncle who's played by Jason Siegel. And they live out in this sort of like artist's enclave out in the woods where they're gr- growing their own food. And she is aspiring to go to Juilliard. She's getting ready for her, uh, her audition. And her sister was her whole world. They were best friends. They ran around in the woods together. And when she dies, she's sort of rudderless. And uh, she gives up on music. She says that she's not going to, uh, going to go to Juilliard anymore, just sort of giving it to a rival at school. And she also finds herself in this weird state where she starts to... Uh, have a romance with two different boys. Uh, you know, one mm. one of whom is her sister's ex-boyfriend, which is incredibly awkward. And one is uh, sort of like the star kid at school that she's always had a, a bit of a crush on. Uh, it's, it, it's very sparkly, this mm. movie. It's very uh, weirdly upbeat for being a story about mourning. It's because it's more about sort of the therapeutic process and the support you have and the love around you and the kind of passions that you're meant to take from those who have passed and how the sadness you feel is something you have to start incorporating into a broader spectrum of feelings mm. rather than a, a trauma. Yeah. Uh, there was, I reviewed another uh, film just last week about teenage trauma. Yeah. Uh, but that was, that one was about a school shooting. Yeah. A bit more, so, uh, a bit more dramatic. So yeah, that, that's a little yeah. bit more aggressive. That's a little bit more yeah. about sort of the, the trauma. I, I really do feel like we need more and I, it's a depressing subject, but I feel like we need more stories men told in the mainstream about dealing with grief at mm-hmm. younger ages. Um, it, it, they tend to be kind of like, tossed in at the end of a lot of movies like uh, my girl or something mm. like that where like something really sad happens towards the end but no. it's pretty much kind of wrapped up pretty quick because the movie's almost over like movies about actually tangibly he- dealing with grief because i feel like well it's, i was like, failed by a lot of the uh, movies like when my like i i wasn't i was fortunate enough that when i was young i didn't lose a lot of close family members mm. so when one when my father died and he was like, the first person who was really close to me who died and i was like in my really early 30s um I felt completely unprepared and I had never, I'd never dealt with grief. Like it was an emotion that I had never exercised before. So I felt uh, it with yeah. no filter whatsoever. And I felt like if I had seen more stories about healthily dealing well, with grief, about, I might've been better prepared for that. At the very okay. least in terms of, I have a general idea of what might come. The, the story is specifically about young people experience. Exactly. Grief, um, exactly. Which I feel like gr- good thing grief and trauma have become uh, incredibly common to the point where it's even being like sort of cheaply handled in a lot of popular entertainment now. Well, yeah. I mean, gr- grief is now like, it's the main theme of the, the show where the witch and the robot get married. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, it's like, that's true. Wait, it's this true, is a yeah. grief story? Is it this, is. It's actually a good grief story, story but yeah, yeah. It's, but you're right. Yeah. You're right. It's a good point, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a witch. I want to marry a robot and live in a sitcom. Oh, wait, yeah. this is about grief uh and what is grief uh, if not the marvel cinematic universe persevering is yeah what, what is grief but a really sort of common theme we go to in a lot of popular entertainment right now yeah. and I, I feel like it's we're we've reached the point where you kind of have to walk a little bit of a tricky line to see what's authentic and what is kind of cheap yeah uh i, I feel like this is going for 
an artist's view of grief, where mm. grief can sort of be incorporated into your life as an extension of art, and uh, how the things you've been learning from art aren't necessarily wholly accurate until you get to express yourself. So this is very much about a teenager mm. who's learning to express themselves. So it's actually okay. a little bit more about her self-discovery than it is about her pain. Mm. Uh, as such, the death of the sister almost starts to feel a little bit like a trifle after a while. By the time we get to the end and she's talking about auditioning again and choosing her love and being the person she wants to be again, it's like... The, the grieving process has clearly ended by that point. Yeah, you're supposed to, you're you're, supposed yeah, to live your life at some point. You know? yeah, yeah. And, and so we get to sort of go so far into it, it's like the inciting incident is almost forgotten about. So yeah. there, there's a little bit of story inconsistency uh, going throughout. But I appreciated that kind of uh, dreamy joy that yeah. the characters were feeling. I think nice. it's always nice to see Cherry Jones. Oh, she's great. Uh, yeah, the, the lead actress is very good. And... Uh, I appreciate that there are so many different movies about grieving that we're kind of learning that there are, there's no correct way to grieve and everybody's going to grieve in sort of their own way. Yeah. Um, and if you're doing it, even if it's not at all resembling what your grief experience is mm. and it feels like the grieving is too easy, if it feels like it's coming, it's being come by honestly, then we can compliment that film. Of course. Uh, this wouldn't be my grieving process if I lost my sister. Mm. Uh, but I understand that this might be this person's grieving process. Yeah. So I'm not going to lambast the film for being inaccurate because I think oh, yeah. uh, there's there's a lot being. Explored. And I want to clarify that I'm not asking movies to tell me like how to live my life and how to grieve. I just felt like it was kind of kept out of the narrative. Yeah. So it's just sort of something that I wasn't really thinking about or prepared for. Mm. Like I'm prepared. I was prepared for things like eventually you're going to meet someone. Maybe yeah. maybe you'll date. Eventually, you know, you're going to be. Uh, uh, approached by the CIA because you have a very distinct set of skills that they need to, in order to <laughs> defeat the uh, evil aliens. But it wasn't really prepared for death. No, I was not prepared for that. Uh, anyway. Um, but, uh, yeah. The, yeah. I, anyway, I've not, yeah. nothing else. Okay, we kind of, we have spelled yeah. out there. Sorry. But yeah, let's, uh, okay, well, let's talk about, uh, let's do a review roundup. Hmm. Let's rate some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Once again, that scale is, goes from C minus to C plus. The lowest a movie can get is a C minus. That is below average. We just generally don't recommend that movie. Might be terrible. Might just not be great. Uh, then we have a C. A C is average. Some good. Some bad. You know, some people might enjoy it more than others. Mixed bag. And then lastly, a C plus is above average. We genuinely recommend that movie. It might simply be a good time. It might be the best movie ever made. Anything in that range is a C plus. On that scale, Whitney. Mm -hmm. What is the skies everywhere? Uh, skies everywhere. It's it's a C. It's okay. pretty pretty dispassionate C, but uh, you know it's. I, I feel like it's doing some things right. Uh, I, I wish it sort of had hit a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. I think it, it could have leaned a little bit more raw. I know the director Josephine Decker is capable of some pretty raw stuff. Yeah. Uh, here she's being a little bit gentler, uh, which is you feel like a, she's a pulling a punch or a little bit. Yeah, okay. I feel like the, she could have hit a little harder mm -hmm. and. Um, that leaves leaves me not dissatisfied, but I feel like there's a lot more potential here. But what, I think what we got was fine. All right, what about Kimmy? Uh, Kimmy is a C plus. I really dug this movie. It's yeah. just a, a wonderful little, uh, wicked little morsel. Yeah, it's a little disposable for my taste, mm -hmm. but so it's, it's kind of on the low end of a C plus. I almost gave it like a really high C, but right. I do recommend it's it's a good time. Like it's definitely mostly well crafted, and I think. 
Mostly it boils down to Zoe Kravitz is a movie star and I'm looking forward to seeing her more things. Hopefully she'll be really good in the Batman and beyond. So uh, in any case, yeah, it's a good star vehicle for her. And if nothing else, we're seeing on that level alone. Uh, marry me. Mary, oh, I mean, it is a C and it, uh, it <laughs> could, couldn't, possi- couldn't possibly be higher. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, you know, contrived Hollywood comedy number 134. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing that really sells it is the sort of the believability and the maturity of the two lead characters, yeah. which I think allow it to be far more watchable than it had it starred lesser, lesser actors. Yeah. I think it'd be a little kinder than you here because you say like, a, you know, it can only be a C, but yeah. I would argue that because it was only trying for a C and it nailed it. <laughs> I think it's kind of hard. To, it, I, I can't fault a film just for having low ambition. I think uh, if you have, I think if you, I can, no, I don't think you can. I think not every movie is trying to achieve the same kind of artistic heights. This is a movie that exists to say like, Hey, wouldn't it be cute if Jennifer Lopez and Owen Wilson hooked up? And I'm forced to admit that yes, yes, indeed it would. And I enjoyed watching it for two hours. Do I love it to pieces? No. Would I recommend it to just about anybody looking for a rom-com? Yeah, so I'll give it a low C plus. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a I'll give All it a right. passing grade. Yeah, <laughs> uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, compartment number six. Um, I, I I'm gonna give it a C plus. This one kind of s- stays with you a little bit. I think, as, especially if you've traveled, mm-hmm. uh, it's a very co- uh, recognizable experience for those who have spent any sort of time uh, in a dingy train, <laughs> which I have. Uh, and like like you could smell that compartment. You know the mixture of like. <laughs> dryer lint spilled vodka and body odor like all kind of mixed together like you you know that o- the odor of that compartment and uh, you get to know these characters pretty well and i think there's a lot of nuance and complexity in their friendship uh and uh, that i can sort of what a viewer can really sink their teeth into so right. really and uh it. lastly yeah. uh death on the nile uh I, it has a lot of issues i think the first half is really clunky I feel like a lot of the exposition is delivered in a really hasty fashion, mm. but the cast is so irresistible. Mm. And by the time it really gets going in the second half, it becomes something really incredibly entertaining. So I'm going to give it a C plus. Yeah. I'm going to give it a low C plus mm. as well. I think uh, I really just like uh, Kenneth Branagh's tone that he strikes with these. Mm. I think he knows that these movies need to be kind of all things at all times. They need to be sexy and sad and funny and serious and relate to real world issues and feel like complete escapism. They need to be totally believable and yet absolutely camp. And I think at its best, this movie juggles that well. At its worst, it falls to the wayside for a scene or two, but it always picks itself back up again. So yeah, as a really solid quirking bit of, you know, big ensemble murder mystery entertainment, I give it a C plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is it. That is it for critically acclaimed. We'll be back next week with doesn't the new Texas chainsaw come out this week. I, th- I think so. Something like yeah, that. there's some, there's stuff coming out this week. We'll review it. Dang it. Uh, and, uh, and probably that and other things as well. Uh, so thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, if you want to join in the conversation, the best way to do that is to email us. Our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Uh, we might read your email in an upcoming episode of our podcast, We've Got Mail. So feel free to ask us questions, uh, take us to task. Do you completely disagree with us? Do you uh, not understand something about things? I don't know. Like, whatever you want, really. People ask us uh, questions that really do feel sometimes like 
you know, we're helping them with an essay, but that's fine too. Uh, we'll help you with that essay. Why not? Know. Let's yeah. do it. Uh, so in any case, by all means, email us. Also, we have a snail mail address. Whitney, what is that? Yeah, send us an actual letter. Uh, we like physical letters that we pull out of envelopes. Uh, send it to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And of course, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And if you want more Critically Acclaimed than you can get at this channel, you, of course, can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have a lot of exclusive shows, including... Uh, all Our Yesterdays, our show where we review every single episode of Star Trek in order. We just started season two of Star Trek The Next Generation, which means we have well over 100 episodes in the can waiting for you the moment you sign up. We also have uh, Holy Batman, which is our show about all the 1960s Batman episodes. Mm -hmm. uh, we have Only the Best. We're reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We have commentary tracks, hangouts every single month. A lot going on over there. Thank you to every single one of our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We would not be here without you, and we are incredibly grateful to you, so thank you for that. Uh, and then Whitney has another podcast. I do. Uh, it's called All About Ovid. That's O-L-L-O-B-O-U-T. OVID. Um, Ovid is a streaming service uh, that has deep cut art house stuff and a lot of interesting international cinema. And uh, I and B. Peterson uh, have a monthly chat about what we've seen on Ovid uh, in, the, in a given month. And uh, the last two episodes, she and I talked to Lynn Sachs, the uh, experimental documentarian and film artist besides about her work and all, all the many films that she has on Ovid. In fact, they just added a few more uh, just a couple days ago. Yeah. So there's this huge collection of Lynn Sachs awesome. films. And yeah, we had this long conversation with Lynn Sachs. Uh, it's over the spans over the last two episodes of all about Ovid. And uh, it is a fascinating uh, conversation about how Lynn Sachs got started in the experimental art scene, what it was like back at the time and what it looks like now. And uh, the kinds of films that she likes to make and the kinds of subjects that she's really interested in. Uh, it's really, really fascinating. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little jelly. <laughs> that sounds really awesome. Uh, watch some Lynn Sachs movies. Get no, on, no, get on I, Ovid. I, I'm jealous that you got the interview now. Oh, That's yeah. my point. Not the movies. I know the movies are available. <laughs> Go get Ovid. But anyway. Uh, anyway, that is it for Quickly Claim this week. Thank you, everybody. Once again, have a great week. Stay safe and sane. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the Midnight Show. I'm sorry, what? Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.